All right. So the question we're going to ask today is America past the breaking point. All right. And here's what we mean by that. But before I get into that, I first want to thank our uh, members in circle, Chris and Robert, because they provided the inspiration for today's show, because we're going to talk about what is currently going on in the United States, but, but specifically through the lens of what is going on, where specifically it's going on within the country and what it actually means going forward. And then we're also going to talk about how do you actually prepare for the long game? What does the long game look like to actually save the country? What can you do as an individual? But there's also some really important questions with respect to federalism and how that plays into this entire conversation. Because I think one of the things that is truly unique about the United States and will ultimately be the thing that helps save it as a nation will be federalism. But we have some people at the table that might disagree with me on this. So all of that and more coming up on this episode of Making the Argument. Thank you so much for joining us. If you're live on YouTube or Rumble, we appreciate having you here. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify after the show is over, we appreciate you as well. If you would like to give us a few episode ideas, we actually have a channel in Circle specifically dedicated to sharing your ideas with us. You can join our Circle community by going to the link in the description of this show. We'd love to meet you there and get to know you. All right. As always, I'm your host, Nick Freitas, member of the Virginia House of Delegates, but other than that, a reasonably good guy. With us today, my beautiful bride, Tina, queen of the bees. I am here, and I have to actually sneak out partway through because I have to go pick up my son, who is serving at Mega Sports Camp. At church. It's, it's like a vacation Bible school. But yeah, so I'm going to go get him, and then I'm going to sneak back in, and you guys can see if you know when I did that. By the way, Tina... <laughs> telegraphing to everyone that you're going to sneak out and sneak in just a horrible tactic. well now they're going to be watching for it they're going to be like tina's been silent for like 20 minutes this is why tina hasn't done a lot. this is why tina hasn't done a lot of undercover work all right we have our resident historian and political prognosticator christian doom <laughs> christian love these episodes but for horrible reasons and then, and then we have our producer of producers nicholas hamilton the good hamilton the one that doesn't like central banking i'm excited nick let's do it well let's see how excited you are when we talk about what central banking is about to do this place because like i said you are the good hamilton the one that doesn't right. like central banking and Spoiler alert, it's some bad stuff. But Also, spoiler alert, this episode is brought to you by Freedom Water. <laughs> um, <laughs> we, we've, okay, listen, we got to give a reference for that. At some point, we're just going to play that video. Yes. We're just going to play that video on here so everyone knows what we're talking about. But there's a comedian named Ryan Long. Can't recommend all of his topics or language, but he did a pretty hysterical, he did a pretty hysterical uh, bit on the way that conservatives and liberal advertise um, on, on YouTube, et cetera. So, ladies and gentlemen... We're in the long game now. This is, this is where we're at. And what do I mean by that? I mean that there is no um, single election cycle that is going to fix this. So there, there's no scenario. Let's, let's say you're someone that believes that as long as Trump or Ron DeSantis get elected and as long as they get a re Republican Senate or House, we're, we're going to right the ship. That's what's going to be necessary to do it and we'll be able to do it in a relatively short period of time. I don't think anyone at this table actually believes that. I could be wrong. We'll see throughout the conversation. But I don't think anyone actually believes that. However, that doesn't mean that the country isn't worth fighting for and preserving, at least the one that we grew up in and the one I think we all still cherish. But the question is, how do we actually do that? Well, you can't actually fight the battle until you understand the operational environment. In fact, when I, when I, was, in, when I was going through the Special Forces Qualification course, that was one of the things they constantly emphasized to us. Because we operated in an environment 
where we always worked by, through, and with the local population. So it wasn't something where we were going in in mass with divisions of Green Berets. In order to, that's not how we did it. We operated in 12-man teams. We went into an area. We, we worked with the local population. We figured out what their goals and objectives were, and then we did our best to merge those with what our goals and objectives were in order to achieve a particular end state. And so one of the most important things we talked about was understanding the operational environment. Don't just assume you know. Don't just assume that the reasoning that you're taking into this or the experience that you're taking into something is sufficient to be effective. So let's start off by talking a little bit about the current operational environment. And we're going to start off with some of the things that are happening in the country that are significant, but not necessarily unknown throughout our history. So the first thing we're talking about here is social cohesion problems within the country. Now, you could definitely point back to the, the earliest days of the republic, and you can find social cohesion problems between the north and the south. What do you mean we have social cohesion problems? <laughs> Everything is so simpatico. It's, it's just wonderful right now. What are you talking about? Tina's like, I love it's, everything I see on social media. It's puppy dogs and lollipops across the country. Speaking of that, like, do you actually want to define what you mean by social That's cohesion problems? That's good. Let's, let's talk about what that means. That We should always define our terms. So by social cohesion, what I essentially mean is that the vast majority of people living within the country... Um, take certain things for granted about the society or the culture that they're living in. Now, these can be good things, these can be bad things, but generally speaking, there, there is, a, is a kind of an underlying understanding about this is what we believe, this is what we value. And so you will, you will find uh, countries with high degrees of social cohesion where there's uh, usually some sort of like shared history or past which unifies them. Um, there, there may be um, shared values with respect to religious traditions or family traditions. There'll be shared values with respect to institutions. There will be general trust within those institutions. And so you'll see a high degree of trust in things like um, the family and the church and other civic organizations. So like, if you, if you want to look back at the United States, you can definitely point to times where people generally had a high degree of trust within the church as a whole, or they had um, a higher degree of trust within social institutions or within uh, political institutions, maybe not political parties, maybe even not like Congress, but the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, the idea of uh, divided, uh, or excuse me, the, the idea of separation of powers, the idea of using democratic processes but having constitutional limitations on government power, uh, a belief in federalism, a belief that there's certain things the federal government should do, certain things that maybe the state should do, and certain things that should be left to the localities or the individual. Um, so uh, a, a certain belief in, in economic systems, so a general belief or understanding that, hey, the economic system that we have generally works as best as it can within, you know, let's say a fallen world or an imperfect world, uh, but it does provide things like upward economic mobility, et cetera. So when you have a high degree of social cohesion, I'll sum all this up, it's when a vast majority of the population has a degree of faith and trust in the various political, economic social institutions, as well as culturally guiding institutions. So this is also includes things like the arts of entertain, arts and entertainment. And when those understandings are in place and everyone kind of feels like they understand the rules and they know the rules and the rules work for them, you have a high degree of social cohesion. When you start to have major distrust in the foundational elements of a society, which create that social cohesion, that's where you start to get 
rebellion. That's where you start to get uprisings. That's where you start to get pushing back against the system. Um, again, when you have a high degree of faith in the way that the system works, you will see rebellion within the system. That's that's people pushing back. They may you know fight for a different political candidate. They may protest. When they start, when that starts to break down, then you start to see civil disobedience, right? And then after a time, what you see is is violent disobedience. And obviously, we're starting to see more and more violent disobedience within the United States coming from both the left and the right, right? It, it's, it's, it's been personified or been demonstrated by both sides. Um, I, I would argue that it's far more, uh, it's been far more prevalent on the left, but I don't think we should be surprised by that based off of their worldview and how they see the United States. But that's what we mean by social cohesion, the social cohesion problems that we're facing. And a lot of times we still think in terms of red state, blue state. What I'm going to put forward is that I think we're actually seeing a lot more now in urban versus rural, because you can go to the reddest state, reddest state you want, and the pockets of, of blue that you're going to find are always going to be in the urban areas. You can go to the bluest state you want, and the pockets of conservatism you're going to find in the rural areas. And there, there are some people on the left that suggest that what this means is, is that the more cosmopolitan, the more highly educated, the more, you know, the, the greater wealth is concentrated in liberal areas, and the backwater is, is for the conservatives. And I, I, don't, I don't think that's necessarily a fair characterization of what's actually going on, but you can see how they might come to that conclusion sure. based off of just looking at various charts. Now, the right will respond with, yeah, but you also have the greatest social, a lack of social cohesion within the cities. That's where you have the most crime. That's where you have the most homelessness. That's where you have the most, you know, um, you know, burglary and robbery and all these other things that are going on that are challenging, you know, that, that status quo. But be that as it may, that's what you see taking place. So it's not as easy as to say red state, blue state, um, it, it's, it's more important to look at where are these problems taking place and why do they seem to be manifesting themselves within rural environments versus urban environments. Now, I would argue that one of the reasons for this is because in rural environments, it's actually easier, I believe, to live and let live. Um, you, you have more space, you have more area. When you start to get into urban environments where people are living on top of one another and they are constantly interacting with one another, that usually screams out for more rules. The more concentrated human interaction you have within a small space, the more rules will be developed to govern what that interaction looks like. And within democratic systems, there's actually a natural incentive for, for people to group together in order to have more power within how those rules are made, right? And, and to now start to move beyond, hey, we're going to make the rules to determine, to, to keep us from bumping into one another, right? Which is, we generally agree on are, 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 is a good source of making rules. And then they start to move in into how can I get an advantage for myself? I mean, my gosh, if we've got all this power to make the rules, why would we limit that to just you know, creating an, an environment we're not bumping into another, when we could move into an environment where we can actually benefit ourselves at the expense of someone else. Of course, it's never talked about that way, right? It's always benefiting you, the good people, um, or, or everybody in general, if just those people would do more, or those people would give more, or those people were subject to higher taxes or more regulations or whatever it is. And so you, you start to see that dynamic developing within urban centers. And I think it actually makes sense that it develops that way within urban centers first. 
Um, but it's it's important to understand that I, I do think that is kind of underlying the 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 nature of what we're seeing between the urban and the rural. Christian, you got any disagreement with that? No, the the urban rural divide is is a very prominent thing, and you see it in practically every single state other than like Vermont. Um, and that is really where where the divide is. It's not necessarily between states; it's within states. Now, now it is still between states, right? Like, you know, Florida and California do not get along with each other currently, sure. but within California, there's tremendous amounts of red territory, right? You know, conservative rural parts, especially you get into Northern California. Um, and likewise, there's very liberal parts of Florida, right? You, you go into Orlando and it's, it's like a little slice of California. So, um, yeah, the, the urban rural divide is, is a real thing and it exists in, in almost every single state. I do think that that is the defining divide in terms of the whole social cohesion thing that, that you're bringing up here. In the past, like the Civil War was fought between states. A more accurate term for the American Civil War is actually the war between the states because it, it wasn't a civil war for control over the federal government. The Confederacy was trying to break away, not yeah. take over the federal government. So so a more accurate term would be the war between the states because it was literally fought between states that were seceding and states that remained in the Union. That's not really where the political divide is today. Like you look at the at the map in a presidential election, you see red states and blue states, but there's blue pockets within those red states and there's red vast landscapes within those blue states. So I what I think that that is going to entail is a lot more messy. Basically, it carries a lot of messy implications when you when you start projecting out forward into the future with with events that haven't yet taken place, but I think at this point are basically inevitable. The question is, when are they going to happen? Not necessarily if they're going to happen. So and I think, and there's a question here from Chris. He says, have you guys read American Nations by Colin Woodard? There is more than North and South. There are at least nine different nations or tribes in the USA. No, it's a good point. And we're not, we're, we only use North and South as a reference because obviously there was a war fought between the states, which was largely defined by North and South. But it's interesting. We actually talk about how in Virginia, which is, you know, one Commonwealth, right? One state, there, there's actually arguably six to nine regions within Virginia, which are very, very different from one another. Southwest Virginia looks very, very different from Arlington and Alexandria, right? Versus Hampton Roads and Virginia Beach area versus Southside versus Central versus Piedmont versus the Valley. So there, there's, yeah, to your point, um, there, there, are, there are a lot of different cultural areas within the United States. And again, what I think is interesting is when, when, you, when you listen to some of the things that James Madison was talking about when they first you know, set up what the United States was going to look like. They also understood, because even at that time, there was major cultural differences, economic differences between Northern colonies and Southern colonies and Northern states and Southern states before the constitution was actually ratified. And so part of the idea was, is that how do you actually, how do you actually keep a nation together when there are significant differences that, that end up leading to different cultural institutions or, or cultural assumptions about society. And the system they came up with was, was federalism, um, a, along with some other things, but we'll talk about that a little bit later. Nick, Nick I got a question for you. Yeah. What, uh, this idea of social currency, yeah. and we've talked about that before um, in terms of people feeling, you know, being the victim or whatever it might be. What do you think the different social currencies are within the urban areas in the, the more rural areas? Well, I, I think, so I, I think by the nature of, again, people living in close proximity with one another and being heavily dependent upon one another for just about everything, 
So, so urban economies tend to be, um, the economy as a whole is very, very specialized, right? So you have a lot of specialization and division of labor. I would argue that that increases exponentially within the city. Um, so if, if the supermarket is closed in the city, you just don't have food, right? right? Like if, if the supermarket does, if there's not a lot of stuff in, in my area in, you know, central Virginia and Culpeper, Virginia, I mean, I still got like chickens in a garden and, and, yeah. and the whole deal, right? There's, and, and obviously my neighbors have other things and we, we help each other out. Mm-hmm. And, and that's not to say that that thing doesn't happen within the city, but I, I feel like there's a lot more interdependency within the city, which again, leads to more rules. And so the, the social currency within urban areas, I think tends to gravitate more toward political power. And the reason why I think it gravitates more toward that is because of the interdependency. Okay. Now I could be I could be totally wrong. This is just my theory, right? Yeah. I don't claim to be a, a, a so, you know an expert in anthropology or sociology, but I think it makes sense. And then over time, once you realize that the government is the only instrument within society, within our society, which has the legal authority to engage in aggressive force, it can engage in confiscation, it can engage in redistribution. The the question then becomes, and and Bastiat talks about this in his writings, is that once you set up a system where that form of redistribution or what he called plunder becomes legally available, people come up with moral codes in order to justify it. All right, so what is the moral code that is necessary to justify using force to confiscate someone else's property? Well, the moral code they distinguish is victim and oppressor. Yeah. Oppressed and oppressed or oppressor. So if you're in the oppressed class or if you're in the victim class, that gives you a certain degree of moral ability to engage within a political process, which again, when you see that emphasis on democracy and democratic processes, provides a, a moral and legal justification to take from you in order to give to me. And so I, I think one of the reasons why you see this, this increase in social currency is because w- within those democratic processes, if you can place yourself into an oppressed category, you now have moral and legal justification to operate to take from somebody else Right, and you're not doing it because you're mean or you're greedy or you're envious. You're doing it because you're a good person. You're restoring balance and equity to the universe, mm-hmm. and this is the legal mechanism from for which you do that. You didn't go out there and hold up their store or take from them, right? You didn't do any of that. No, no, no. You just voted. You just used your political power to do it. But that has that has implications, um, and I don't think you see that as much within rural uh, settings and environments. I think one of the things that Thomas Sowell also talks about, and he talks about this not as only a bad thing but a good thing. Um, in areas where there is more exposure to trade and ideas, that can also be a positive thing. But it's like it's like anything else, right? This this, this greater socialization, this greater interdependency, can be used for ill or it can be used for good, right? So it, it's not a it is not um, morally certain one way or the other. It's a question of what sort of ideas actually rise up within those those organizations, with those institutions, and what sort of implications do they have. And this kind of leads me to my second point, the arts and entertainment. Now, we, we haven't talked a, a ton about the arts and entertainment on this show, but I, I think we'll, we'll actually probably start including it uh, more as it becomes appropriate because the arts and entertainment are culturally shaping institutions, right? They tell the stories that in, inform us about ourselves. Um, and I don't just mean this when they tell the, the documentaries or things like that. I mean that when they tell the stories that are meant to help shape culture, that, that has an impact on the way that we view ourselves, view our institutions, view our history, view our, our relations. 
and, and by necessity come up with the strategies that we're going to use to alter the future. And I, I would say right now that we've reached a point, the, the social incohesion that you see um, between urban and rural in, in the United States is just, I would say the arts and entertainment almost has complete social cohesion, but it's all on the left. Yeah. Um, and, and that, again, if, we're, if we want to understand the operational environment, we need to understand that the, the culturally shaping institutions within the arts and entertainment are almost exclusively dominated by the left. There's very few areas where it's not. A shorter way to, to summarize that is the left has monopolized the art and en entertainment industries. And, and if you need proof of it, I mean, just, just literally watch anything produced by Hollywood today, right? Or, or um, go to a university system. I mean, because that's also especially in the humanities departments outside of like the hard sciences, mm -hmm. um, anything that's producing art or entertainment within the university system, incredibly left-wing. I, um, I, anybody that consumes any sort of mass media knows that the left, I'm, I'm sorry, but like if you need somebody to explain to you, make the argument, um, no pun intended, you know, how or to what extent the left controls art and entertainment in America, you're, 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 you're completely blind at this point. Like it has been totally monopolized and that's another type of divide. So like you were bringing up earlier urban versus rural divides, but there are other types of divides. That's a geographic divide within arts and entertainment. There's also a divide. For example, people are watching this podcast right now rather than watching something from Disney yeah. or watching something from any of the mainstream media outlets um, or reading the New York times, God forbid. So like there there's, <laughs> That's an example of, of people self-sorting ideologically in terms of what type of media they consume, how they spend their recreational time, what type of, of art or entertainment they, they, they like to enjoy. Somebody on the left and somebody on the right, there's almost no overlap there anymore. And there used to be for a long time a significant amount of overlap because the art and entertainment industry was not as, as ideologically divided as it is today and especially ideologically so slanted in one one side's favor i i think it, i think that's an interesting point because like i i like watching old shows so i remember being younger watching reruns of andy griffith and watching reruns of gilligan's island stuff like that and what was interesting is gilligan's island was actually a little bit more left-wing really yeah it was when you when you when you looked at the characters of like the howls like the rich people on the island and whatnot and they would make comments about like um like i think it was medicaid and medicare when these ideas were actually first really through the process yeah they were made out to be like the quintessential evil rich republicans that didn't want medical care for you know poor people right that when, was when i watched that show as a kid i i would not have caught up on. oh no caught, you of course that. of course you wanted to but but that's part of the that's part of the genius of some of these ideas yeah. kind of like flowing through in a way that makes sense based off of the way the character development has gone now now let's fast forward to a show that when i watched the first season of this show i thought it was brilliant right not, not every aspect of it but overall i was really impressed with it ted lasso yep Season one of Ted Lasso, I was like, wow, like what a, what a great character. What, what a great, you know, there, there were so many things in there that I feel like anybody along any side of the political spectrum could have watched that show and found things that they liked, that they thought was genuinely funny. I, and for those of you that don't know, Ted Lasso is a show about an American football coach going over to be a, a football coach in, in the UK. So a soccer coach, yeah. right? And, and he was brought in specifically to, to tank the team because the owner of the team at the time wanted to sell it and be done with it and kind of like get back at her, at her, uh, at her ex. 
But as time goes on and, and like his attitude, which is just overwhelmingly positive, it's kind of right. like this really folksy wisdom that he, that he says. And it's like, you just can't help but like this guy and be kind of like won over by his, 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 you know, positive way of thinking. And I remember watching season one going, you know what? I, you know, again, there's stuff you could point to. Like, yeah, I don't like that. Overall, really well done. Season two, all of a sudden, it was like, okay, wait a second. They're, they're, starting to, they're starting to bring themes in here that are totally unnecessary. Like, they, they don't even fit. Like, the, the point they're trying to get across doesn't fit. You can tell they're starting to cram ideology in there. They're trying to force it into situations that it shouldn't be. I, I've watched a few different shows on Apple TV, and they are very strategic in not throwing any woke stuff in the first season, getting you hooked, and then bringing it in the second, third, and it gets a little bit worse as the show goes on. Well, and it just got blatant to the point where I, I finally, I, I remember just saying, okay, I'm, I'm done. Like the moment they started talking about trees are socialists, like, oh, give me a frigging break. Like this is just stupid. And then, so I stopped, I stopped at season two. I was like, I'm, I'm done. I, I don't, I don't need this. Like you, you guys had a great show that was really onto something that actually provided something of value because I could watch Ted Lasso. And somebody that doesn't agree with me on politics could watch Ted Lasso and we could both find things in it. We're like, oh, you know what? That's that's great. And that's a good point, And that's funny. And that's, you know, that's valuable. We used to find the same thing in sports. Sports was one of the was one of the few bastions that was still left to us where, you know, you, you could root for a particular team because you, you had memories growing up with it. Or like for me, I was at the. I was a huge Dodgers fan because my parents got divorced when I was very young and I got the summers with my dad, right? My dad was LAPD. I got to go spend the summers with my dad. Um, really just loved, looked up to my father, the whole deal. And going to Dodger games was something that we did together. And so it didn't matter from, from that point on, it didn't matter where I was in the world, right? Or where he was or whatnot. When Vin Scully came on the radio announcing a Dodgers game, for me, I, I was sitting there with my dad watching the game. Absolutely loved it, right? Absolutely loved it. Just, a, just a, a formative memory for me and something special I got to do with my dad. I'm not a Dodgers fan anymore. And people say, oh, well, that's stupid. That's petty. Oh, is that just because you hate other people? No. It's because the Dodgers decided that they wanted to wade in to politics and it was politics. It wasn't just openness and inclusiveness. No, they chose to honor and reward, you know, a subsection of a group that goes out of their way to mock my faith. And so I said, you know what? That's done. Like, if you're going to make me choose between being a Dodgers fan or, or, or my faith, I choose my faith every single time. You're not worth it. You're not worth it, but it's a shame because we should have never had to choose. We should have never had to choose. And it doesn't mean that all those memories before with, with my dad or, or with listening to Vin Scully or, or showing up to Dodger Stadium and watching or, or remembering when Kirk Gibson hit that home run that nobody thought he was going to be able to get in, in game one of the 88 World Series. Like those memories, you know, Brett Butler coming over and signing uh, my, my baseball, those memories don't go away. But unfortunately, the organization has made a choice to be something different than what created the memories. That's like me with my, my alma mater, James Madison University. Um, I loved going to JMU. Um, I, I, I had a, a, a great time at JMU. I, I enjoyed the classes that I took and everything. I loved the campus. It was gorgeous. 
Um, I, I, I don't really care about JMU anymore. Um, I, I kind of wish that I could return my diploma and get my money back, to be completely honest, because JMU is his. And I, I remember I, I'll, I'll, I'll end with, with JMU is just taken a, a nosedive in terms of just head first into the woke stuff. And you've seen it as a legislator oh, yeah. here in Virginia um, because JMU is a state funded college in in, um, in Virginia. But um, I remember my my senior year at JMU telling a friend. It might have been Tyler, actually, the Tyler that works in, in politics with us, not the not the Tyler that actually watches our show. Shame on the other Tyler that doesn't watch our show all the time. Actually, he does sometimes. But um, anyway, I remember um, uh, I, I'm pretty sure it was with Tyler um, telling him, you know, I, I have a feeling that this was like 2014, 2015. And I was like, I have a feeling that like the school's name is probably going to change at some point. Yeah. James Madison. Yeah. And I remember him saying something like, that's just not going to happen. I'm like, oh, watch it happen. And then it was like, that was, by the way, for those that are, are listening to us or watching us, you probably know this too, that like 2014, 2015, those were like the last two years before the great awakening, mm-hmm. right? Like it was almost like immediately after that, like you, you, you can go onto Google and do like keyword searches for certain things like intersectionality or third wave feminism or Black Lives Matter or, or, or really like any of these these phrases or buzzwords, systemic oppression, neocolonialism, all this like garbage pseudo academic quasi religious nonsense that the left now parrots today. It all it, like if you go on Google Trends and you see like the use of these terms over time, you just see an explosion right after 2015. It, it like starts the year that I left college and I could see it on the horizon. And now when you go to these universities, I mean, I thought that I was an outcast when I was in college because I was a conservative. Um, I was more libertarian than I am now, but I was, I was on the right still. Now you go there and it's, it, it's like these people, we don't even belong in the same country together. Okay. So that's, that's a good segue to the next point. So the, the, the first point was on social cohesion problems. And then the second point was on arts and entertainment and in sports and things like that. And how, again, one of the things that arts and entertainment, and now this is not to say that the, that the power that comes through arts and entertainment can, cannot be used to influence good causes. Like I'm not suggesting that I'm not suggesting that everything just be, you know, 10,000 foot entertainment. And there can be no, there can be no in-depth conversations about things. I think arts and entertainment can be used in order to challenge certain presuppositions or ideas. Right. And that's not, it's not in and of itself a bad thing, but I, I would say that right now it's certainly been taken over. It's dominated now by a particular ideology. And, and the thing with sports though, sports, I do think was a little bit more sacred in the sense that, um, there was really no, no great reason for sports to involve itself in some of these issues, but there is a great reason for the left to involve itself in educational issues. No, it, it is. But it, now, and again, I want to say the same thing. D- does that mean that um, now people will say, Oh, so you don't think sports should have um, sports should have, uh, you know, imposed itself with respect to issues of like segregation. Like, so you don't, but again, I was a Dodger fan, right? Like I love Jackie Robinson. No, you don't. You, what, what needs to be understood is that sports already had involved itself in a political question of segregation by trying to keep people out and they should have never done that in the first place. And so when, when they, when they weighed in and when the Brooklyn Dodgers weighed into this whole idea of like, no, we're not, we're not going to do this. That was the correction to baseball involving itself in, 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 um, in a discussion inappropriately in the first place. Nick, I, 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 I think that we're not even doing it justice when we allow the left to equate 
state-sponsored racial-based segregation with mentally ill people trying to impose a twisted gender ideology on children. Those two things are not the same thing. So when somebody comes up and says, oh, so you would have been okay with segregation, my response to them would be F off. <laughs> and and the reason why is yeah. because they're playing with a dichotomy that I don't accept. I don't accept the idea that, that, that oh, well, if you're opposed to, again, race-based Jim Crow legal imposed in the, yeah. in, in the state code segregation saying that people must be treated differently based on their race or skin color, saying that that is of the same moral value as drag queens trying to strip in front of children and and left wing pediatricians trying to chop children's genitals off? No, I, I'm I'm sorry, I completely reject that dichotomy. There. Oh, I I agree. No, I think that's important. I think one of the things that we're going to get to in the second part of this is we're going to talk about the whole idea of I don't accept your dichotomy. Yeah. Because right now there right now there seems to be this idea of like no 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 you must accept the equivalent the 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 false equivalency arguments that I'm making. No, I don't. Well, you must accept it. No, I don't. And, and that's going to be an important part of the conversation. Next, we talk about the education problems. Christian's already alluded to it with JMU. Most of your educational institutions right now, and we, we've known this about higher education for, for quite some time. We already saw that kind of revolution taking place earlier on within American history, but it, it's kind of come full circle to the point where it's not just higher education. Now we're starting to see this stuff in elementary school, and that's the part that I think nobody really saw coming. And and it and that's like you said- That's the part that radicalized a lot of people. It, it, really, it really has. That's the part where it's, again, and once you start coming after the kids, right? And, and I, I love it that, you know, we, we, we talked about the, the Pride March. I talked about this on, on Instagram, a, a Pride March. There was some people in the Pride March saying, we're here, we're queer, we're coming for your children. And um, people are like, oh, that's, it was just a couple of people saying this and it was ridiculous and it was a joke and it was mockery of you guys calling everybody a groomer. It's like, okay, oh, you mean like when the whole San Francisco Gay Men's Choir said the same thing? It's like, this is the part where it makes it hard to believe you even when you claim you're engaging in just mockery or satire or, or whatever else it might be. It's because we've seen so much of nobody wants that. Oh, speaking of which, nobody look at the chat, wants Nick. that. Look at the chat. Brian Betts, first off, no one is trying to chop off children's bits. So it's a false equivalency made up by you. Oh, yeah, I just totally nope. made it up. Totally made it up. Brian, so glad you're here. You you want to school him on this? So so glad you're here because you're wrong. You're just wrong. This whole nobody wants to do this. Really? Okay, there's been there's been well over a thousand operations within the United States. There, there's an increasing push to do more and more of it. Whenever I hear anyone say nobody wants to, my initial inclination is whatever you say next is what you actually want to do if you only had sufficient political power to make it a reality. So I'm I'm sorry. When, when you tell me nobody wants to, and, and there is ample evidence of people that not only want to do it, but have done it and are encouraging it to be done. Two minors. No, no, no. You don't get to say it. this doesn't happen to kids. We're talking about, we're talking about puberty blockers only. No, you're not. Or maybe you are. But you didn't say, I don't want this to happen. You said nobody wants this to happen. That is verifiably false. It is verifiably false. And there's plenty of evidence to the contrary. So here's what I would ask. If you're going to say nobody wants to do this, what you're actually saying is you agree that that would be wrong, right? You agree that that would be wrong. So if there's evidence that it's happening, naturally your position would then transfer to, oh, I didn't know that. I agree that's inappropriate. Now, I don't know you, and, and maybe you would take that position. Maybe you would take that position. But I promise you it is going on. 
There is evidence that it's going on. In fact, there's, there's institutions that brag about having done it. So you're going to have to be forced with one of two things here. You're going to either have to admit that you were wrong, that some people do want to do this, and you think it's inappropriate, or you're going to shift your argument to say, okay, well, it's happened in limited cases, and actually it's a good thing. And I guess we'll get to see what you actually believe, because I know what is predominant within left-wing theory on this. And it is never to come back and say, oh my gosh, I didn't realize that. You're right. That shouldn't happen. But I do think this thing over here is different. I, I never see that take place. It's always, that's not happening and I'm glad it is. Every single time. Every single time. No coming back and actually saying, you know what? I didn't realize that. That was that was. That was incorrect. In California, they're literally pushing legislation right now to take children away from parents in order to allow for this to happen to minors. Yeah. Well, not, not to mention that I love, I love the transition to these surgeries aren't happening. First of all, yes, they are. Secondly, it's not the surgeries. They're just doing puberty blockers, which is completely reversible. No, they aren't. Oh, and then it's, it's third. Why are you conservatives so upset about this? That's always that's it's always, always the, the Republicans always pounce response. And a big right? part of this is because of the educational programs and institutions that have been put in place that are now exposing kids to ideas of gender ideology, right? And queer theory at a younger and younger age. And, and I had the same debate where somebody told me that we sat there actually at a debate. It's on video. It's online. You can go check it out where I was told that, oh, critical race theory is not happening anywhere within our schools. And anybody that says difference is simply just trying to divide us. And then I pulled out of my pocket a bunch of screenshots from the Virginia Department of Education at that time that was requiring teachers to go through this training and then was encouraging them to use yes lesson plans from a whole host of organizations, which were openly advocating. They were proud of openly advocating it. But once again, the idea was, is no, 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 you're lying. I'm not, I just showed you the evidence. So if you accuse someone of lying or you say nobody wants to do something and they in turn present to you irrefutable evidence that it's happening, you got one of two options. You can either come back and say, okay, I was wrong. Some people do want to do it, but now I think it's a good thing. Or you can say, okay, I was wrong. Some people want to do it. And I agree that that's too far. Let's see what position you take. Because that is what's happening within our institutions of education. There is a reason why parents of all walks of life, of all skin color, of all racial and ethnic backgrounds, of different political persuasions are looking at what's going on in their public school system right now and going, wait a second, this is not what I signed on for. And that's why you're starting to see more alternatives, which we're going to get to in the second part. Third part, fiscal problems. And now, again, keep in mind, why we were, what, what did we start all of this off with? We started all this off with explaining the operational environment and why one major election cycle is not going to change this, right? So um, imagine in your mind, the perfect president, the perfect majority leader in the Senate, the perfect speaker of the house. Imagine all of that. Imagine all of them are in power. It isn't going to fix any of the problems within a short period of time. And we're going to go into one of the major problems. So we already talked about three problems. Here's the fourth one, fiscal problems, welfare state and entitlements. All right. We have a massive federal welfare state at this point. Massive redistribution that's taking place to the tune of about, I think it's anywhere between 1.5 to $1.7 trillion. Oh, it's probably, it's probably higher I'm, than I'm that. I'm talking about point. the government imposed versions of it. Right? So like, are you including like social security, Medicare, yes. Medicaid? Okay. Yeah. So, so we have about one point. Let me look this up actually while yeah. you're, while you're I, talking. I want to say it's somewhere in the neighborhood of $1.7 trillion in, in what we call exchange Payments. So this is where um, they, they take the money from one sector of the population and then they give it to another sector of the population. Now, we can argue all day long on which part of these programs you might like, which you might not like, whatever it is. The, 
The point is, is that it is happening. The other point that I would make is regardless of how you feel about an individual program or maybe maybe the original justification for the program. So let me go ahead and put the left's argument in the best possible light, right? Here's the left's argument for welfare programs, for these, for these various um, entitlement programs in the best possible light. Nick, there will always be certain sectors of the population that no matter how good your economic development is or whatnot, that due to circumstances beyond their control, it, it could be a disability that they were born with. It could be a disease that they contracted. It could be a natural disaster that took place. We're talking about things beyond their control. They are not going to be able to provide for themselves or potentially their families. We cannot, as a society, sit back and watch them starve or go cold or go hungry or get sick and die because we were unwilling to allocate a certain amount of resources in order to help that population. So, and, the, and the point is, and the point is, most people look at that and be like, you know what, that is incredibly reasonable. Incredibly reasonable. All of us believe uh, from both a, a, a moral level and a sympathetic level and a practical level that it is important to be able to provide for people in that situation. The problem is, is that when you allow the government to be the primary purveyor of that, the end result is, is they create systems which are self-perpetuating, right? self-interested, and ultimately, ultimately, horribly inefficient at actually doing what you want in part because politicians now have an incentive to expand the nature of eligibility for these programs. The more people dependent on these programs, which are ultimately dependent on that politician taking a vote or allocating resources, the more loyal they can become as voters because now they see their very survival as dependent upon whatever politician keeps the money coming. And it doesn't matter the long-term problems with, with the various programs. It doesn't matter that they're not solvent long-term. It doesn't matter that you're actually disincentivizing productive activity and you're incentivizing non-productive activity. doesn't matter that that's actually done here because the political math adds up. And so the problem is, is regardless of how you feel about it, regardless of various scenarios that we might all be able to agree that something should be done, the moment the government becomes the primary instrument in order to make that happen, politicians will always have an incentive to expand the number of people which become dependent upon that program. And they will be able to morally justify it all day long. And the less it works, the more they will find bad people that they can point to as being guilty of it not working, selfish, greedy people who just don't want to contribute their fair share. Does this sound familiar? That they can then target politically for confiscation and redistribution. And the thing is, is that there's always going to be somebody that actually fits that definition. There's always going to be somebody that actually is the tax cheat. There's always going to be something that actually is the, the bad employer who abuses their employees. There's always going to be somebody who actually is the bad guy when it comes to dealing with fraud or creating a product or service that they lied about that actually hurts their consumer. There's always going to be that. But this idea that, but if the government took it over, that wouldn't happen. Really? Really? You're going to look at government-run institutions and you're honestly going to tell me they have a better track record of not hurting people. All right. So I, I looked it up. Um, it's it's well well over half of the federal budget is is entitlement spending and in, transfer in, in, payments. Tra transfer payments. You said it was like one point something to to. I, I think you said it was like one point two. Well, trillion. I said one point seven in direct transfer payments. So, so entitlements are a little bit different. So it's but. one point. It's over one point two trillion for Social Security alone. So the the difference between direct transfer and Social Security is that you actually do pay into Social Security. 
right? So yeah, the, but you and I both know that you actually take out more than you spend in. Oh yeah, that's part of the reason that Social Security is totally insolvent and will eventually yeah. eventually cease to exist when the when the Social Security trust fund runs out. And at this point, it's like less than than twenty years. I think it's less than fifteen years actually. But yeah. um, no, it's it's like over half of the entire federal budget is transfer payments and entitlement programs. Yeah. Social Security is the largest, followed by Medicare. Other welfare programs you're talking like. Um, in fact, actually, I've got a, I've got a list of some of them. If if anybody wants some examples, when I say welfare programs, we're talking refundable tax credits, SNAP, housing assistance, SSI, Pell grants, TANF, um, Head Start, WIC. Um, that's what I mean by by welfare programs. Um, and then after that, you get Medicaid, on uh, federal unemployment, and then other economic support. And that's not counting. Um, any any sort of like subsidization yeah. um, for anything because there's there's tons of federal subsidies mostly unfortunately corporate welfare and stuff like that oh yeah I would also include that under welfare I for corporations let's make something very clear because that's an excellent point a lot of times when we talk about the problems with welfare programs or we talk about the problems with transfer payments a lot of it on the right gets focused around welfare programs right we want to make something very clear here we are free market people we despise corporate welfare. We, we absolutely despise this idea that the government will take, excuse me, take tax dollars and then give it to the businesses with the best lobbyists. We do not approve of that either. And by the way, I got a voting record that will prove that. Um, Nick is so, one of the only people in the entire legislature who has consistently voted against, I mean, every form of, of corporate welfare that has come up, even when overwhelming majorities of his own party oh, on both sides. has voted I mean, for that, that's from both too. sides. Yeah. I, I remember when the Amazon stuff came along, Nick was one of only a handful, like five or six people to vote against the state subsidies for a new Amazon headquarters in Northern Virginia. So he's got the legislative chops to, to back this up. Nick, the whole point with the, the fiscal and monetary stuff, and I know that I think that you have a, a, a question in the audience. Yeah, in we the got about three questions it. waiting right Do you now. have anything on like the fiscal or monetary well, stuff I think that's a question? The, the, yes, some of it. Yes and no. Uh, yeah, actually we do. So so like one person, uh, Dr. Dank's <laughs> Lobotomite Laboratory. Um, Nick, since you're talking about the welfare state, I'm curious, how do you feel about VA compensation? So I, I think the VA system is run horribly inefficiently. I, I think it needs, it's it's in need of in complete reform. Here's, here's one of the differences, right? Here's the difference between a welfare program and an entitlement program. So an entitlement program is generally associated with somebody contributing into something in order to get something out of it, right? So there's a little bit different than a straight welfare program, which is just a transfer payment, which is to say, we're taking money over here. We're giving it to someone over here. We're not giving that person money because of something they did in exchange for it. We're just giving it to them. In fact, in most of your welfare programs, you're giving them money, not because they did something, but because they didn't do something. Now, you, you can argue that maybe there's something that happened beyond their control, right? But in many cases, that's not a criteria. They're, they're not giving you the welfare payment because something happened completely out of your control that you can't help. They're just giving you the welfare payment if you qualify. And the qualification does not require you, in, in many cases, to have, again, engaged in, a, in a, um, uh, an exchange for services. Now, with entitlement programs, there's still a problem with those because, as Christian pointed out, they were written in such a way to where they weren't designed to be an exchange of services. I voluntarily give them the government money in order to manage my retirement for Social Security. That's not what happens. The government takes your money, and then they don't even put it into a fund which is specifically designed to collect interest in order to pay out to people that are pensioners. No, they, they put it into a general fund. 
And then the, there's no money there. It's just incoming money from current people paying into Social Security go to people that paid for it before. So it, it's a, it's again, it operates like a Ponzi scheme, even though everybody gets in trouble when they mention that. Actually, now, that gets to Nick. Well, I, wait, I, I, I need I need to I need to answer okay, his question. His right. question was, what about VA compensation? Now, one of the significant differences between VA compensation versus Social Security, Medicaid, Medicare, or welfare programs is when you when the military because we have an all-volunteer force. When the military is asking you to sign up for the military, part of what they offer you is pay. Part of what they offer you is health care. And then part of what they offer you is veterans benefits. So the idea is, is this is part of a benefits package that you are signing with the government in exchange for services. Not to mention the fact that while some people don't believe this, I do. I do believe the military is a legitimate function of government. I think most people believe that. So the idea is, is we can debate whether or not the military packages or the compensation packages that they, they uh, design are good or bad or fair or unfair, but I think it falls into a completely different category because it actually is an exchange for services. And so that's and, and an exchange for services with a government program that is no doubt a legitimate, constitutionally justified function of government, whereas I would argue Social Security, Medicaid, Medicare, a lot of those, that's a lot more problematic question. So, so that, that answers that one. So Nick, you brought up an interesting point when you said, you know, I know that, that a lot of people get upset and it's it's kind of political, you know, suicide to to say Social Security operates like a Ponzi scheme. That actually gets to the heart of of ultimately why why we're doomed on on, on the fiscal front because I've said it before that like a, a a thrifty politician is an inefficient politician. Um, you you are far more likely to succeed by promising more money than less. And the fact that it is openly regarded as political suicide to say that the fiscal trajectory of the largest welfare program, entitlement program is a more appropriate yeah. term, in the country is unsustainable. It is. Yeah. It, it, that is a mathematical fact. That's not an opinion. That is a mathematical fact. It is unsustainable. Yeah. It, and can, yet, it cannot continue to operate the way it currently is. And yet it is political suicide to say – what it is is it is political suicide to say something that is true and factual yeah. simply because people do not wish that it were so. And when that is the case, when people vote against somebody who is saying something that is a, a fact, a mathematical fact, regardless of whether or not you wish it were the case, I wish it weren't the case. Yeah. I wish we could print unlimited money and give everybody as, as you know, the, the lifestyle that we all wish that, that everybody could live, right? I, I, I wish MMT could work, yeah. right? <laughs> but, but if you're punished politically through our democratic process for saying that it doesn't work, Yes, we're doomed at yeah. that point. We're totally doomed. And everybody who thinks about this for a second removes the emotions from it and just thinks about it knows that this is true. Mm -hmm. Look at the trick. Has there ever been a civilization ever in history that has been able to sustain infinite deficit spending using a fiat currency system? No. It's a 100% no. failure rate. No. And, and ultimately what deficit spending is, Nick, is... An attempt to create money out of thin air. Yeah. Because what what you're trying to say is is that what politicians are spending money on, we they're currently not bringing enough in through revenue, um, and and taxes in order to to fund things, but they still want to fund those things. So where are they getting the money? They're creating it out of thin air, either through borrowing or through money printing, or through um, uh, um, through 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 deficit spending, and so ultimately 
that still carries a cost. And that cost is either going to come again in the form of higher taxes or higher inflation or higher borrowing costs. It's really going to come in all three. Yeah. And the problem that we have is, is that there is literally no way to fill the hole. You could, I, I, I brought this up before. You could take the world's two richest people. You could take Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. You could shoot them and confiscate everything they have, tangible and intangible. You could take all their cars, all their assets, all their stocks, take their, their houses, sell them on the black <laughs> everything that they have. Yeah. Um, you could liquidate it all and turn it into cash and you would be able to fund the federal government for 30 days. And, and after that, you won't have anything else. Yeah. And, and, and you, I, you, I, I get, you won't have the consistent revenue stream of their productivity. Yeah, people after on the left will say, oh, but that's just two billionaires. You could take all of them. Yeah. You, you could, you could take every single cent because the, the, the debt at this point is higher than the GDP of the entire country. Yeah. Anyway, I know that you have some more comments yeah, that you want to. No, it's, that's a good point, though. I'm glad you made it. So Micah Wilkinson, by the way, thank you very much for the donation, Micah. He says, Nick, if the political environment gets bad enough, do you think Texas might vote to secede? Ah, excellent question. And you should stick around for the second part because we're going to go into that. But the the short answer that I'll give to your question is that I, I think it is I think it is a possibility, but I think there's some other possibilities that are more likely. So we're going we're gonna to get into this, some of the specifics and details of that question. We had another question here. I'm trying to, uh, again, Hamilton put it up here. If you do have a question that you actually start off your, your question with, question, semicolon, it helps us find it a lot easier on the chat as we go back and try to make sure that we didn't miss anything. All right. Hamilton, was there one I missed? Oh, here we go. Wait. Uh, Jesse uh, Cubbage asked, question, is corporate welfare the same as too big to fail? What would be the impact if we did actually let these poorly run companies and banks fail? That is an excellent question. So in part, the answer is, is yes, but it's not complete. Corporate welfare is not just too big to fail. Uh, fail. Uh, corporate welfare, when that's mentioned, is essentially government subsidies to industry. Now, some people argue that, well, those government subsidies are necessary because it's protecting them from foreign competition, or it's necessary because it lowers prices for consumers at, at the end state. You see this a lot of times with farming subsidies, or it's important because it, it takes some of the... Um, uh, some of the unknowns out of commodity trading and allows for businesses that that operate within very thin margins to be able to exist through bad times. Right? These are all some of the arguments that are used for government subsidization, uh, which is a form of corporate welfare or, or, or business welfare. Um, the too big to fail are those institutions, and, and Christian and I have talked about this before, that you know, when, when, if the left were in power, how would they do this? Well, would the left just come in and seize all the means of production and, and make nationalize all companies? No, probably not, but they would continue to put in institutions and organizations in this column of strategically important to the economy. And over time that provides justification for more government takeover. Uh, but the problem is to, to your question, what would happen if we let some of these fail? Well, what's interesting is that the way the market works is, is not only through the more efficient creation of products and services, but it's also this concept called creative destruction. And that is when a business operates in a way that is not sustainable, it ultimately fails. Now, the question is, is, is there pain when it fails? Obviously, yes. There's pain for the owners of the company. There's pain for the shareholders of the company. There's pain for the people that work at the company. There's a pain for the people that might rely on the products or services that they create. But does that mean that when a company fails, all of the infrastructure associated with it just disappears overnight. It's gone. It's destroyed. 
No, in most cases, that's not the case at all. What ends up happening is somebody else is able to buy that company or buy the infrastructure that it had or the capital projects that it owned at a reduced cost, which allows it to then reuse those resources in a way that's more beneficial for the economy. So if, if you can accept that we live in a world where bad decisions will be made and that will result in depreciated capital or where it will result in, in bad decisions that can hurt people, then the, the real question is, What's the most efficient way to prevent that from happening and to ensure that when it does happen, there's a mechanism where those, where those resources can be reused in other ways that's beneficial or that com competitors can come in and continue to provide those products and services. And what we found historically is the market economy is the best way to do that. But the market only functions effectively if companies are not only allowed to succeed, but they also must be allowed to fail. Right. So the question is, is what do you do with the people that, you know, hey, maybe they, they shouldn't have invested that way or maybe they lost their money in the, in the bank or whatever it is. The, the real the moral question that you have to ask here is not just what is the responsibility of the government to intervene. I would argue that it really doesn't have one. That doesn't mean that you or I can't help somebody that's in need. But if the government starts to consistently create this environment where they always bail out bad decision makers because those bad decision makers have invested a lot in lobbying, then inevitably what you're going to end up with is a market that doesn't function properly because the government's constantly stealing from people that, that made good decisions in order to give to businesses that made bad decisions. And that's a recipe for long-term disaster. I got a quick question from someone on the MTA channel. Is Social Security an example of the fundamental opposition between human nature Nature and sustained conservatism? Is it not human nature to focus on short-term benefit over long-term costs? So it, 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 is, it is human nature to try to get the most benefit for the least amount of effort. And, and that, can, that can manifest itself in a positive way or a negative way. So the, the, the negative way is you don't care about what happens tomorrow. You're just living in the moment. And so you're just trying to get whatever you can. The positive manifestation is that actually leads to efficiency. So the, the real question is, is that we as human beings don't just typically don't just think in the moment. We also think about the future. But there's certain things that governments do that affect the way we think about the future. So, for instance, if you um, if you have kids, if you're married and you have kids, you are far more likely to think about the future than if you don't. And the reason why is because if you screw up and you're married with children, well, then you're not the only one being directly affected by your screw-up, right? Your, your kids are, your family is, people that you presumably love and care about. And so having a family actually allows people to re reprioritize their needs, wants, and desires in, in, in favor of not only the right now, but the future. And, and what's interesting is, is one of the... <laughs> One of them, there was, there was this interesting, uh, there's been a couple of different studies that have been done on this, but one of them was they give a bunch of toddlers, right? They came in and they gave a bunch of toddlers um, a, a marshmallow. And they said, you can eat the marshmallow now, or if you wait five minutes, I'll come back and I'll give you another marshmallow. Now we kind of think about that as adults. And I was like, what's the big deal? It's a stupid marshmallow. If you're a, if you're a toddler and you don't have control over your consumption, and now you have a, a marshmallow that you really like, that's a huge temptation. It's a huge temptation to just take it right now. Okay, but what they found is, is they tracked these kids over time. The kids that were willing to wait in order to get the second marshmallow, which, by the way, is like 100% return on that five-minute waiting, right? That ability to engage in delayed gratification for a bigger payoff is one of the biggest indicators long-term of how wealthy and successful someone will be because they're, they're able to put in the work right now because they can envision a future 
where it will be better if they delay the, grat- the immediate gratification. Now, when the government comes in and punishes you for long-term investment, when they, when they progressively tax you more, when they hurt you more for that, when they, when they create situations where when you consume right now, they get less of it, but when you save and invest and, and save for the future, they take more of it. They're now disincentivizing the positive component of human nature in favor of the negative component of human nature. And so I, I think that's what's important to understand about it. When we talk about Social Security, it's, it's more about this idea that this seems like a simple solution, right? It seems like a, a fail-safe because obviously if the government promise me, promises to give me something, they have to make good on that promise, right? Well, yeah, legally they have to, but what happens when they don't have the necessary resources to do it? And then because it's the government now and not like, let's say, a private fund or something like that, that you could potentially sue for not holding up their fiduciary duty or, or whatnot, um, you don't have the options. The government forces you to pay into it and then allows you a benefit from it. And as we've already expressed, it's not going to be long-term sustainable. So they are feeding on a, a both a, a fear of people with respect to planning for the future and a desire to just hand it off to somebody else that can do it for them. And, and two, they're also fearing on this moral idea that, well, if you don't contribute to this particular system that the government runs, it's not just about you, it's about everybody else. Well, again, we've, we've already demonstrated, and other countries have demonstrated, like uh, Singapore's done this, I think Chile's done this, other countries, where they still actually have certain programs which will require you to save for retirement, but it's not a government-run system, and lo and behold, it actually functions better. So, Nick, um, the last thing that, it, it, it kind of flows from what we were just talking about in terms of like entitlement spending and fiscal policy is the monetary side of things. Um, they're, they're, they're kind of like two halves of, you know, two sides of the same coin, but yeah. that's the last point that, that I think that we wanted to get to in terms well, give, of like, give, where, a, give everyone like as best you can give everyone kind of a, cause you said that, and I think that's right. I think, I think a lot of the fiscal policy, bad fiscal policy actually drives bad monetary policy, but let everyone know because I would say no, that, no. I would say that bad monetary policy enables bad fiscal policy. I think if you had good monetary policy, you couldn't have bad fiscal policy. You can get away with bad fiscal policy because we continually debase the currency. I, I would argue that you could still get away with bad fiscal policy. You couldn't get away with it as long as you can with a fiat currency. F- f- fair but, argument but the, for another time. But the point <laughs> is, is that you also believe that this more than. Uh, uh, maybe not perhaps more than the other factors that we've discussed, but when it comes to understanding the operational environment and what's going to happen and why the next election cycle, the next mm-hmm. five election cycles aren't going to fix it all. This is going to be the thing that triggers the breaking so point. Give everyone, I want to see how concisely you can do this. How okay. concisely can you make the army that it's going to be monetary policy that actually leads us into the second part of what we're going to talk about today, which is the long game and why it's going to require a long game. Okay. So the one word, um, answer is doomed um <laughs> the, the 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 slightly longer explanation um is that perpetual mmt light style so monetary- mmt is modern monetary theory and it's the idea that because the government has complete control of the currency through fiat currency which is paper money not backed by anything that obviously they can continue to print it in order to pay off debts and do everything else and that long term provided that they manage it correctly it, it's perfectly fine. So that's MMT. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. So like our current monetary trajectory is, uh, is, is that is going to be the thing that actually breaks. So, so the, the title of this is, you know, of this episode is, is America past the breaking point? I'm actually going to argue, no, it's inevitable that it will break, but it's not imminent. If that makes sense. 
Yeah. So, for example, I, I think the monetary system is inevitably going to collapse. But I'm not one of these people that's like, use promo code Christian Hines <laughs> to get 15% off of gold bars. This episode <laughs> sponsored by gold bars. By the way, totally recommend buying gold. Um, uh, probably more things like Bitcoin than gold. But yeah. I, I, I'm not here to like sell you know, something to, to somebody saying the economy is going to collapse tomorrow. That's it, it's not, it's not imminent. Yeah. You're not, you're not saying Mad Max tomorrow. Yes. You're not saying this is all happening. Well, I don't overnight. think Mad Max is going to happen at all. I think, it, I think it's going to be more Weimar than Mad Max, but uh, even the Weimar, um, you know, end state, which is where I think we're going. I think we're going to end like Weimar and maybe post Weimar. We'll see. Um, it, but it's not imminent. It's inevitable, but it's not imminent. I don't think it's going to happen tomorrow. I don't think it's going to happen a, a week from now or a month from now. I don't even think it's going to happen a year or even a couple years from now. I think that it could happen in 10 or 20 years. But it, Okay, but is it so is it fair to say that when, when we look at all these issues with social cohesion, arts and entertainment, education problems, fiscal problems, we've actually been dealing with a lot of these for decades. The monetary thing is the newer thing. It's the, it, I would say it's the newer thing, especially starting in the seventies. I think it's, it's, it's interesting. And when, it's really ramped up. It's since interesting when, when the left always points to income discrepancies between the, the top 10% or 1% versus um, entry level labor, even, or even mid-skill labor, they always say, Oh, see, this is all a result of Reagan where it's like, no, there, there's a, there's a far closer tie between inflationary monetary policy. But I, I think, look, would it be fair to say this? The reason why the monetary policy is the one that actually can um, affect like a crisis Whereas a lot of these other stuff you could you could see a slow drain over time. The monetary policy can actually affect a, a crisis in a relatively short period of time is because with a fiat currency, which is paper money tied to nothing, if the government gets to a point where they actually start engaging in hyperinflation, that's where all of a sudden people show up to the grocery store and they can't buy anything. And that's what'll tip over the apple cart. So all the other points that we've brought up, you asked me to like, you know, try to try to explain why I, I, I focus on this issue more than all the others. All the other things are the things that radicalize people on, on both ends. It polarizes and radicalizes things like education, the arts and entertainment, all the, the, the social stuff, the culture war stuff. Those are all things that are polarizing people and radicalizing people on both ends. But what will actually upset the apple cart is going to be the monetary policy. And the reason why is because when you eventually, when, when basically the game of musical chairs ends, and we get the inevitable hyperinflationary, you know, debt crisis yeah. that, I mean, I think it'll be both playing out at the same time, the dollar being destroyed because the debt crisis becomes too much to handle. And, and we have to resor resort to, to debt monetization in order to fund the federal government's endless fiscal, Spending. you know, uh, terrible fiscal habits that you're going to get a, a, a huge hit to people's standard of living that is going to put people into the streets and that's, what's going to, going to make people be like, basically that, 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 that's going to create social unrest. And at the same time that you're going to have massive social unrest because standard of living is going to decrease across the board because of hyperinflation, you're also going to have a crisis of authority and power at the federal level, because how do you fund the alphabet boys paycheck yeah. with monopoly money? Is the ATF agent going to go and enforce federal gun laws in Idaho when they're being paid a monopoly money? Yeah. Of course not. They're going to go join the people in Idaho. <laughs> like, like, and that, is, that's when it becomes a Mad Max scenario. Is, no, 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 that's no, not, no, not no, even that's then. when you get Weimar. 
Wait, what happened? Like Germany almost collapsed multiple times in the 1920s and in late 1910s, right after World War One, because there was no stable government and there was no stable currency. And you had just street gangs fighting it out. And there was no police that could break it up because the police weren't getting paid anything. The police were joining the street gangs fighting each other. This is also why you had the emergence of these radical anti-democratic political movements like the KPD and the NSDAP, the Communist Party of Germany and the National Socialist German Workers Party, otherwise known as the Nazi Party. You had these like explicitly anti-democratic movements pop up because nobody, the standard of living had collapsed. The money was worthless. There was no law and order. The, 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 the state governments within Germany, let alone the central government in Berlin, none of them could, have, could, could actually fund a stable judicial system or police system in order to maintain law and order. It wasn't Mad Max in the sense that like the buildings collapsed and the roads collapsed and we yeah. were driving around in dune buggies in the desert wearing leather clothes. And, and it, like, like that wasn't the case, but there was mass chaos. And the only thing, well, at the beginning of the 20s and end of the 1910s, the only thing that kept Germany from falling into a communist revolution was the Free Corps, mm-hmm. which were, they were on the right made up of of ex-German veterans that actually knew how to use arms. And they were the ones that basically kept the law in order. And they, they were on the right. They were not democratic. They were probably more, more they weren't necessarily pro-Nazi, but they were certainly probably more pro-imperialist government. Yeah. Um, and, and that was basically... You know, it was it was people taking matters into their own hands that basically kept the the ship of state intact until finally, at the end of 1923, 100 years ago, going into 1924, Germany did finally manage to get the hyperinflation under its control, and um, I think it was Strassmann and a few others that that like started to right the ship, and then the Great Depression hit, and then. I mean, that was basically the second punch. Germany was already reeling from the first one. The second one just knocked it flat on its back. And at that point, people totally gave up on on voting their way out of this problem. And they just immediately went into either supporting the communists or supporting the Nazis. And it just so happened that history played out in a way that gave the Nazis the, the win. But it could have been easily the communists as well. My point is, is that when the monetary... When our when fifty years of bad monetary policy finally catch up with us, so at this point I guess it's sixty years, right? When that catches up with us, the democratic edifices of the United States will come crumbling down, and what will replace it is going to be quite scary. I don't think we've necessarily gone super into detail about what potentially could replace it. There's a somewhat better solution, and then there's a a, a much darker one, but. I, I think that what will replace it, unfortunately, is going to be the, the the darker of the two because that's just usually how history plays out. So, so let's and that's going to move us into our second phase of this, right? Where we're going to talk about okay, so that's the that's the operational environment. Um, the the question is is that how do you actually prepare for that as an individual, and what does it actually mean when it comes to like saving the United States? Well, again, Christian scenario is if the monetary so with everything else that is going on, what it does is it creates. Again, a lack of cohesion socially. It creates self-sorting, um, but what it also creates it within the uh, within the left is this idea to to centralize power as much as possible within the federal government. But if you have a major monetary problem, the question is, how does the federal government have power right now? The federal government has power because of three reasons. One, p- people believe it has power. Two. It has a ton of money to give out, but where does it get that money from? Well, it gets it from taxes. It gets it from borrowing and it gets it from printing. Three, it, it has 
like what Christian calls, it has federal law enforcement and it has the military, right? So it has the guys with guns that can potentially impose things. And the judicial system. And the judicial system. So so Christian's point here is, is that if you reach a situation where in order to, in order to sustain all of the bad fiscal policy, right? So the, the social incohesion, the arts and entertainment, the educational component, that, that all creates kind of pockets. That's the, the whole, um, you know, uh, self-sorting piece. If the only way that they can sustain the fiscal promises that they've made is through printing money, you get a collapse of the currency. And then all of a sudden, one of the major, the, the two major points that, that they rely on, the federal government relies on one, handing out money and two, using federal law enforcement and military authority. Those two things have now been severely diminished. Right, they, it has nowhere near the power influence it currently does, and I can tell you this as someone that's a sitting legislator. Right now, the federal government has a lot of power over state policy, not because they will punish you if you don't do it, but it's because they will withhold funds if you don't do it. And what that does is it gives the federal government essentially the power to extort states and extort you with your money, because it's not as if the federal government is creating any of its own, except when it prints it. So what happens when those funds that they're using to extort states become worthless? States start to push back. That's when states all of a sudden have a lot more authority provided that their own fiscal house and social cohesion is in order. Yeah, because the ones that need the funds, they're going to be in big trouble. Right? Now, the left will also, <laughs> the left will all uh, loves to point out that well, it's red states that get the the majority of federal funding. There's two things that you need to consider when you're actually looking at those numbers. One is what's the nature of the federal funding? Is it military spending? <laughs> because red states tend to have bigger military bases, more military personnel, and more defense industry. Secondly, it's what is the nature of transfer payments? So even the people that are receiving massive amounts of welfare, is that primarily going to more conservative-oriented areas or is it going to more urban areas? And the answer is it depends, right? A lot of your farm subsidies are going to more rural conservative areas. A lot of your straight-up welfare payments are going more to your urban areas, right? So this idea that, oh, the blue states are all rich and, they, and the red states would collapse with all this federal spending, no, that's not necessarily true. It depends on the nature of how it's spending and, and how it's actually coming into the states in the first place. But the important thing to understand is, is that when you have a collapse of one authority, the question is, because, you know, again, power pours a vacuum, Right which power replaces it. And what's interesting about the United States and our federal system is that states, which have, again, good social cohesion and their fiscal house in order, are the most likely to be able to weather the storm and create some sort of alternative. Now, the real question then becomes is, based off of how people self-sort during everything that's going on right now, and, and there's, I'm a little bit more optimistic than Christian. I think that theoretically it could be, the, the ship could be righted before we actually get to this point. But this goes into the question that Micah asked earlier when he donated. Once again, thank you, Micah, for donating. Does that mean that certain states, he specifically asked Texas, will secede? I, I think, again, that is one scenario that you could potentially see. I hope it never, ever comes to that. But I think more than likely what you're actually going to see is not so much a push to secede or break away from the United States as much as you are states pushing back against certain federal authorities and basically once again reapplying a more, I think, honest interpretation of the Tenth Amendment, the Ninth Amendment, as well as 
Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution, which lays out the enumerated powers of the federal government. I think you will start to see states more and more say, look, you can no longer tempt us with our own money because you've done such a bad job fiscally and monetarily that we're now the ones bearing the... And if we're the ones picking up all of the bill, we're not going to take a bunch of arbitrary rules from the federal government. And the end result will be is that those states which are most dependent not just on federal spending, but have been most reliant on the federal government to impose certain rules, right? They're going to be the ones that are, are find themselves in a situation where it doesn't, the system they relied upon doesn't work the way it has. And they're not going to be able to just go to the feds and, and get more money or get bailouts or things like that. That's why I, 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 I disagree with you in terms of the, the I, I, I agree that that is the optimal scenario, but I disagree in terms of the likelihood of that happening because states, I think, or first off, I think states have been totally neutered by the federal government and have been certainly since the Civil War and certainly since the 17th Amendment. But secondly, I, I st states are too reliant on federal money. When, 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 when that dries up, they're going to be in just as much of a crisis as as they will be in a slightly less crisis than the federal government because states usually have far less debt than the federal government. Sure. But imagine, I mean, just imagine, Nick, Virginia, overnight, not overnight, over a long enough period of time, the federal government goes through this process, this, this hyperinflation crisis or this debt crisis, yeah. and suddenly money, you know, the, the, the price of money goes up through the roof, hyperinflation goes up through the roof. Imagine a scenario where federal aid to Virginia is worthless. Imagine yeah. the, 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 the massive hole that that would blow in our no, state no, I, budget. I, I, I agree. And I, and I think Virginia, and, and this is, this is one of the reasons why too, in Virginia, there's actually been a push to actually ex expand out. The number one industry in Virginia is still agriculture, right? But, but a large, you know, and agriculture and tourism are too, well, obviously if you have a, if you have a huge crisis, right? Agriculture is in good shape, <laughs> but you, you don't have the same thing with tourism. And you certainly don't have the same thing with federal spending because federal spending in Virginia is a huge component, especially, but it, then again, it's regional federal spending in Virginia is, is incredibly consequential in Hampton roads, incredibly consequential in Northern Virginia. Yeah. It's not as consequential in Southwest Virginia, South side, or even central Virginia, it's still consequential, it still means something. But it's not as important to the overall system down there. In fact, Southwest is a little bit more dependent on the transfer payment side rather than direct spending on defense or law enforcement. or It's or Hampton Roads agencies. in Northern Virginia that control the state politically, though. And when you have a, a huge drop in standard of living and a huge increase in unemployment and a huge increase in prices and a decrease in wages, you're going to radicalize a lot of people. So, but the question And you're is, not just going to radicalize them on the right. You're going to radicalize them on the left sure, as well. The, the, the question is, is like different states will function differently because different states are actually, different states are anticipating different things going forward, right? And this is, this is what I think is so important is that when you look at, okay, you, you have this sort of issue where let's just say we won't call it collapse. Let's just say that things have changed drastically from the status quo, right? And now the states are now various states have prepared for this better than other states, right? So the states that have not prepared for it all, they're in a ton of trouble. And like you said, California's doomed. Oh yeah. They're, they're in a ton of trouble. <laughs> states that have prepared for it. Now, all of a sudden they're weathering the storm better. This is going to cause people to, again, self-sort. So you're going to have a whole self-sorting that takes place before this happens. Then you're going to have self-sorting that takes place after it happens. Now, let's get into what you as an individual could do because so much of what we've talked about is, is effectively beyond your control, right? And But when I say effectively, I don't mean totally. 
I just mean that the, the vote that you get to place, or even if you decide to run for office or whatnot, you, you're still, this This is kind of a fraction of the overall issue. Still important, but a fraction. But what are some of the things that you can do individually? Now, we're going to break it down the same way. We got social, arts and entertainment, education, fiscal, monetary. All right. Now, we still believe the self-sorting will happen, that more and more people will actually move, not just for economic opportunities. Even before the collapse. Even before. People are going to start moving more and more for ideological reasons, right? If you are a conservative, they actually had a state senator in California, I think during a committee meeting, a state I've never seen this before, a state senator get up there and say, leave California. He said, I've lived here all my life. I love it here. This will always be my home state. He goes, but they are now creating an environment where they are making it very, very clear, essentially, that they don't want you here. He goes, and you just, you need to flee. I've never seen, I can't imagine saying that about Virginia. I'm originally from California too. I can't imagine saying that about Virginia. And this is my, this is my adopted home. But, but I also understand what he's, I also understand what he's going through. Well, being from rural, like Northern California, where it's all farmland yeah. and, I mean, when you think about it, those are the people that are like, uh, I can't really leave. It, it's hard. It's hard yeah. for people to leave in a, a rural area where they've they've got a lot of history, a lot of family. They're part of the farming community. Do you know when you know when they're they gonna can't leave, just though? up and leave? You know when they're going to. And leave? so what they're trying to do is actually split the state into like three yeah, sections, but that, which that, will never happen. It'll never happen. But, but let me because tell you this. Southern California wants the water rights to everything in Northern California. So what 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 you just said is absolutely true. Like the, the more connected you are to the, uh, especially like the land, the more difficult it is for you to move. So here's what's going to happen in places like California one night. The, the father, the mother, the whoever it is, whoever the patriarch or the matriarch of the family that's kept that farming going for so long, they die. Yeah. And now all of a sudden between state inheritance tax, federal inheritance tax, everything else, they're forced to, they're forced to parcel up and split off that agricultural land and they sell portions of it off in order to pay taxes. And then it's, they move away. It's no longer profitable. And then they leave. Yeah. And then they leave. That, that's what ends up happening. So we're going to start with the first one. Socially, what do you do to prepare for this? Now, we've already talked about this. We're going to have a whole episode dedicated to intentional communities, but a large part of it has to do with what we call intentional communities. So as social cohesion becomes more difficult um, or, or starts to break down, that doesn't mean there aren't plenty of people that share your values. Now, again, I'm not talking about social cohesion where you're supposed to lock yourself up and only talk to anybody that ever agrees with you. I'm talking about being able to, to live life around and with people through the marketplace, uh, you know, through, through other things that are important, that share basic fundamental values. Remember when we talked about social cohesion and we defined it, we didn't say social cohesion is no disagreement within a society. We said that there's a basic agreement upon the most fundamental aspects of society that allow people to be able to operate where they understand the rules and they believe the rules operate to their benefit overall. That's where you're going to start to find this within civic organizations. That's where you're going to start to find this within, uh, you know, church organizations. I think one of the things that we're going to see more and more that's, super interesting to me is within economic organizations. I think you're going to get, you're going to start to see more. Oh my gosh. I can't believe I'm using this, word, but cooperatives, not collectives. Nobody, I haven't gone. I'm not going commie. Don't worry anyway, but I think you see more cooperatives. You started to see this during COVID when all of a sudden people started to become aware of the, all the government regulations that made it difficult for them to buy food from their neighbor or to get medical care from the people they wanted to get medical care from. 
So I think what you're going to start to see within the social you know, branch of this is you're going to start to see people coming up with, with new and interesting um, and, and in some cases maybe even disruptive ways with the way the, the economy currently functions, economic and social cohesion. So it is going to be more of that, well, why can't I buy that from my neighbor? Why can't I go to my neighbor's farm and buy this from him unless it goes through a federal inspection center? Why can't I do well, this? The problematic thing, though, is that when people try to do that back during the Depression, well, what did the administration do? Well, they, they tried to do it. They and get- tried to stop them from... Uh, farming things on their own property for their own consumption and for their friends and family's consumption because that affects. Yeah, you're the talking about the Filburn decision. Commerce. Yeah, the the Filburn decision was was radically absurd, where it basically said that the federal government under the Interstate Commerce Clause could regulate what you grew on your own property for your own consumption, because if you hadn't grown it on your own property for your own consumption, you might have gone to the store to buy it, and if you'd gone to the store to buy it, you might have bought a product that actually came from a different state, and so therefore right. interstate commerce would be affected. That's how ridiculous the it, reasoning was. It is ridiculous, but I can see them circling right back around to it. But to Christian's point. Right. If they don't have the money, because we didn't have massive monetary collapse during the the 30s, um, we, we, we were, had deflation. We had de- so you understand that is as bad as that's FDR, what a depression. I, I, I hang, yeah. hang on one one second, Nick. That's what a depression is is deflation. And by the way, this is why incorrectly well, it's, it's deflation but, within certain categories. It's well, it was deflation. a credit crunch. Yeah. The, 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 I'm just, I'm just the, the Great Depression that, like, was a giant credit crunch, which created deflation, which also led to a vicious feedback loop that basically prevented the economy from being able to recover. And FDR's solution to that was, well, we need to artificially raise prices well, to combat just- deflation. Now, we criticize him trying to to impose price controls and i mean he was paying farmers to destroy crops and and kill cattle and stuff right. like that well that would that's like on the larger scale but i mean even since the depression you can see certain laws and and crackdowns happening in various states like california i remember growing up um my dad owned a carpet cleaning business my stepdad yeah and um he used to do was part of a barter and trade group yeah and we we had all our dental care and everything from people who my dad did their carpets. And yeah. so they traded our dental care for their carpets. We had like a bakery that traded the baked goods yeah. for my dad's carpet cleaning. Well, at some point that started to, the government was starting to get really mad about that. And they cracked down and totally broke it up. Like it was completely broken up. So. Okay, this, uh, this, uh, I, I get so that. That's, that's why I'm looking at this going, we can do all this stuff we want. But the thing is, is at some point, the the leftists are all going to go, well, that's not fair. Okay, but, but, and this then is, our response is going to be, so what? Well, that this is the point. You got to remember the context in which we're talking about here. So some of this, you're, you're right that leading up to all this, the federal government, the state governments, and whatnot, they still have maybe an interest based off of who's lobbying them or whatnot to crack down on this sort of behavior. But it's getting more difficult for them to do in certain respects because there's more ways to engage in it and to be careful about how you engage in it and to operate in gray areas. Right now, if it if what happens with monetary um, problems, where now the federal government simply doesn't have the resources to constantly send more and more inspectors in or more and more federal agents in to enforce the law, right? And you have a local sheriff who's a constitutional officer. Constitutional officers don't answer to the president. They don't answer to the governor. They answer to the voters. 
who, who looks at this and says, I'm not, I, I am not enforcing this federal law because A, it's not my responsibility to enforce that federal law, and B, I don't agree with it. You now have a situation where the federal government can say whatever they want, but if they no longer have the money to tempt you to do what they want or the force to compel you to do what I they mean, want. I mean, that's when the FBI launches an investigation into your sheriff. That's the point, though. Like the, the, the point that we're talking about is understanding where we're at now versus where we could be at in 10 or 15 years where they no longer have the resources to be able to crack down on this the way that they currently do. Uh, that's the whole point. I know. I'm just, I guess I'm not, I'm less optimistic about how far they're willing to go and and how much cracking down they will and won't so, do because we watch in our current society uh, even under republican leadership um you know certain um companies having things confiscated from them because technically they they broke the law even though it was you know law under the previous administration or whatever but like at some point they're going well you did break the law and it is the law so no, we're going to take I, your stuff I, I, I get that but again we need to under, let's understand the context that we're talking about all right just because that's an obstacle doesn't mean you don't do anything and so the question is is what do you as an individual do well again i'm not telling everyone go out and just start flagrantly breaking the law i'm not talking about any of that well that i am <laughs> i'm saying at some point that's that is what the point i'm getting at is at some point you're going to be breaking the law and you have to make the decision if it's worth it to you and i mean at some point you are standing up against the powers that be and you have to decide whether whether you feel like you're on the moral high ground, you're to do not going to so. have to worry about. Fe- so, 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 Tina, the example that you used, Great Depression, with like federal agents coming in and punishing people for like growing food on their own land or having livestock or whatever. Again, the Great Depression was an economic crisis that was brought about by a massive credit crunch that resulted in deflation. The the Weimar Germany scenario was literally the exact opposite, where you had hyperinflation. You right. didn't have a credit crunch. You had the currency being inflated into the stratosphere yeah, and debts being wiped out. but we're not just talking out. about a monetary thing right now. We can look as recently as COVID and how they crunched down on all of You're these right. business owners. And we watched our very own ABC here in Virginia basically go busting in and taking the alcohol from an organization that had their uh, they had their health code or their health, um, what do you call it? Well, basically, they had their ABC license revoked due to health code violations under the emergency order of Northam. And so because of this government overreach in one area where they were locking everybody down and saying, you must mask all of your people and doing all of this, because of that, they had their ABC license revoked. Well, once they realized that they weren't within their boundaries to, to... take away their health code stuff. All the health code stuff comes back, but the ABC license is still revoked. You know, I'm looking at this going even, and and I even watched even Republicans, certain ones were like, well, you broke the law. And I, I'm just a little concerned that, that in the rest of our society, we're going to see pockets of that type of behavior um, and that will continue people. that that that's why I, that when Nick told me the last point uh, uh, the points that we brought up 
when Nick told me, Christian, you know, you think the monetary thing is going to be the thing that actually leads to the breaking point. That's why, because you're going to keep having the boot of the state clamping down on people until the boot doesn't exist anymore. So everything you just said, that will continue up until the point that the dollar becomes effectively worthless. Once that happens, it's a different ballpark because those agents, those government officials that are enforcing all these things that you're bringing up, Tina, when they're being paid monopoly money, they will have no incentive to go and enforce any of this stuff at all. And that's, that's the hope. when that's it's a totally... Well, wait a second, that's wait a second, hope. wait a second. Just, <laughs> let's just all pull back. I mean, although I do got a local admin says, Nick, some people are born with Riz. Others are born with veins close to the skin. It's like your face is giving us a roadmap to your ego. I'm not even sure what that means. Other than, I guess my veins are coming out. Do you know but what Riz is? I know what Riz is. Yeah, okay. I learned what Riz is. Riz is like being like kind of cool and just we had a to natural, learn that from a natural our charisma to little uh, Gen Z let, let me, kids. Let me, okay, let me bring this back around to what we're talking about. So obviously all of that is a valid concern. Yeah. The, the, I wasn't off the topic. I know you're you're not, the one talking about veins. So I realize, I realize this, but the point is, okay, great. So you think that what I'm saying is that there's plenty of operation, uh, op, plenty of things to do to operate, all right, within the laws that currently stands. I'm, I, I understand that civil disobedience is a proud tradition within the United States and has been used to not only great effect, but to great moral effect. And I, and I think that's all positive. Okay? Yes. And that's my but, camp. But okay, great. Yes. But the point is, all right, none of this means don't do these things. And, and so another person brought up a comment like five minutes ago where, where he was talking about um, when, when it comes to some of the, like the social welfare programs and stuff like that, it doesn't mean that those things shouldn't exist. It's a question of who bears the responsibility for it and who should be doing it. And his point was a lot of things should be done by voluntary communities. And I totally agree with that. And that's part of this first point about what do you actually do? So the social cohesion that you build within the church, within um, markets or transactions, or within the example that you brought up that was very good about the barter system that your, your dad used to uh, partake in. All of those are ways that you can actually set up intentional communities. It's also the way that you also provide assistance to people that need it, right? So, so the, the church or Elks or whatever it is, right, doesn't just provide a nice place to come together and either study theology or study about community things or when I, although that's positive that's a, that's a I obviously believe that's a good thing. It also provides a mechanism for economic transaction. It also provides a mechanism for social welfare, right? But it's social welfare through voluntary participation as opposed to government coerced participation. And, and I believe that not only is that far more efficient, it's actually far more effective because what you're actually going to see with that sort of social welfare um, system is a process where, where people are actually encouraging you um, to where, again, let, let's, let's, let's divide these two things. There, there are some people that find themselves on hard times through no fault of their own, right? Natural disaster, unanticipated disease, whatever it might be. Um, there's other people that find themselves in perpetually bad situations because of the decisions they make. Mm -hmm. The government does not incentivize people to go away from those decisions. In fact, they subsidize you staying in those bad decisions. Yeah. And there's accountability. When things are, when things are voluntary, there's more ac accountability to keep your behavior within uh, acceptable norms. Yeah. And John, John James pointed out, and this is going to go into our second or excuse me, our third point, but he talked about the way, same way they treat homeschooling, any independence by the plebs must be crushed. And, and it, it's, it, it's interesting. This has been one area with homeschooling where you actually do see at, uh, like strange alliances uh, between elements within the left and elements within the right 
who homeschool or unschool for entirely different reasons, but are both adamant about protecting the ability to do so. We, we were always shocked about the, the homeschool laws in Washington state were actually really good. And you wouldn't have anticipated that, but you are starting to see a, a significant break now where I think the, the left is going to more and more move toward absolute opposition to anymore. homeschooling. Well, yeah. and, and so the, the only point that I was trying to make on a lot of this, you guys, has to do with the fact that you're going to be swimming against the stream in these types of solutions to what we're talking about. So you're going to have the overarching, you know, society is kind of going to be against you just like they are right now. We can't delude ourselves into thinking that, oh, well, we're going to do these intentional communities and everything's going to be just wonderful and no one's ever going to come knocking at the door, you know, trying to shut us down. That's not probably the case. And we should probably all be prepared and ready for the fact that we are going to be the resistance sort of in this situation. I don't know if that's the we, right we, word we, to use, but I, I, I agree to, you know, you're basically, you're the one swimming against the stream and it's going to probably be difficult and it, it'll be a lot easier if you have a community to do it with. But that is the current status quo where we're, we're, we're swimming uphill or swimming uphill, swimming against the stream. <laughs> you can't swim uphill, <clears throat> but like that's the current status quo. What, what, you know, we were talking about is when we get to the, because again, the title of this episode is, is America at a breaking point? My argument is no, it's, it's not, we're heading towards it. Um, we're accelerating towards it. Um, <clears throat> yeah, towards it does it. seem like we're accelerating but, um, towards it. Man, I'm losing my voice. But um, we're not there yet. And and it's not imminent. It is, I, I, I've said this before, it is inevitable. It is not imminent. This is not me saying, and I don't think it's Nick either that's saying like, you know, oh, tomorrow civilization's going to come to the end. The government's going to have no power and control. The money's going to be worthless and you're going to be on your own. That First off, that's not entirely what's going to happen. And second off, it's not imminent. I really do feel like that that what will play out is very reminiscent to what played out in Germany in the 1920s and hopefully not Germany in the early 1930s. But I, I do think it's very possible that you could get something somewhat similar to that that gets into the right wing backlash. But um, no, like, I mean, civilization didn't come to an end in Weimar, Germany. And, and you had a lot of these things that Nick is bringing up, like, you know, all of these, you know, other intentional communities, right? Your church, civic, you know, civic organizations, your local community, your neighborhood, um, you know, people, you know, not taking their kids out of the public school system and, and private schooling or homeschooling them. Um, all of these things, independent art and in, in, in media and entertainment rather than, you know, everything that's sanctioned by the Leviathan, right? All those things also played out in Germany in the 1920s. Like, like there, there was still a civilization. It wasn't like Germany descended into mass anarchy and it was like, you know, the, you know, the, 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 the German, you know, region of like the Roman empire, right? Right. Where it's just, you know, a bunch of, of, you know, barbarians in the woods. Like that's not but, what but happened. There is kind of a period of confusion. Like if you, if you look at like, let's say when the Berlin wall fell, there was a period of confusion where people were trying to gain their footing mm -hmm. again. And I, I think we are going to go through that. But Absolutely. I do think on the other side of it, we will emerge with, you know, some of these problems solved, thankfully. 
That brings us to the building back. Well, no, we're not even close uh, to we're that not. yet. <laughs> we're not even close to that yet. So the social cohesion part is the things like, again, the church, civic organizations, economic organizations, social welfare. So what I like to talk about with the social cohesion that you create amidst a lack of social cohesion in the broader society is that you're saying that within, within your community, within your family, within your church, within your group, when something goes wrong, you don't create this automatic dependency upon government systems. Right, you take care of each other. So everything, everything the left likes to talk about that they're going to do through a new federal program, we're suggesting no, you do that through voluntary groups and cooperations. Yes. And, and and again, they like to talk about, you know, think globally, act locally. Well, this is about as local as you can act if you really believe that. Secondly, second category, right? Because we're mirroring the categories before on the social and cohesion. Arts and entertainment. What do we what should we do individually within the realm of arts and entertainment? And I think there's two perspectives here. One is from the perspective of the consumer. And one is from the perspective of the producer. Now, we talked a little bit about this before when it came to like watching Ted Lasso. First episode or first season, I thought, wow, like I, this is great. I feel like a people from diverse backgrounds can watch this, get something out of it. And actually, lo and behold, have something to talk about with people that you might otherwise disagree with in a positive way. Well, clearly we're seeing how that's that's going away. So I, I would say from a consumer standpoint, we need to be careful about the media that we consume, the entertainment that we consume, the music that we listen to, the messages that are within. I, I remember listening to one theologian talking about, you know, three three levels of philosophy. He goes, level one is when you're when you're talking about um, kind of like the fundamentals of uh, truth and laws of logic. He goes, level three is more of like the prescription or what he called, you know, sitting around just talking to people. And level two. Was was the arts and entertainment like there is always a worldview that's that's basically being prescribed within the movies and the music that you watch and you listen to. So one on the consumer side is be careful. At. Two, and this comes on the production side. I, I talk to so many students who you know will ask me like you know Nick, how do I get involved in politics or how do I get involved in running for office and how and I always say okay look. Um, there's a number of ways you can do that. And if you really feel led to do it, that's, that's great. Cause we do need people that believe in Liberty and, and want to preserve these things. However, is there anybody here that actually knows how to do video editing, <laughs> right? Is there anybody here interested in the theater? Is there anyone here that can sing? Is there anyone here that can paint? Because what we desperately need within our side is, is people that can help tell the story of what we're talking about, not just make good esoteric or philosophical arguments, Telling the stories is so drastically important, and we want creative people that are able to do that in an honest way. Like there was a whole debate going on with respect to you know what sort of things should we be teaching in our schools and anti-American education versus pro-American, and 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 the debate. And once again, the debate centers around how are we going to do it within the the realm of the government. And and my argument is let's let's get outside of that. Let's actually have a marketplace of ideas with respect to education. And one of the ways that you compete within that marketplace of ideas is not dictating what you want through legislation. It's offering up something within the marketplace. And then when it works, when it provides value, when people watch that movie, when they listen to that music, when they see that painting, and it does something that actually provides value to them, they like it and they want more of it. And so this is one of the biggest areas that I would encourage people, don't just look at the political and the economic, although that's obviously important. Also look at the realm of the arts and entertainment, because one, I think God created us to be creative. And then two, 
there's something that genuinely like we don't just need to feed the belly or the mind. You also need to feed, you know, the, the, whatever you want to call it, the soul, the spirit, the heart. There, there's that, there's that element within us that, that yearns for the things that are beautiful and true and noble. And, and having people that are able to articulate that through the arts and entertainment is absolutely critical. So I think that's another way that we actually prepare going forward is to, is competing within those spheres that are culturally shaping. I think as liberty-minded people in this area, we also need to master the art of subtlety. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Elaborate on that, Hamilton. Well, I, I think oftentimes as conservatives, we think, oh, we're going to go you know, participate in a conversation on social media or we're going to become a content creator or we're going to be a filmmaker or we're going to do this, that, and the other. And our goal in operating within that industry or in that activity is to push our conservative values. Yeah. And that might be a good thing. It could be a good endeavor. But I think oftentimes we forget that we are the, our first priority is to serve the customer with what they want from us. And so if we are going to be a filmmaker or a content creator, our first initiative must be to meet the interest and the desires of the customer in that relationship. But, you know, you know, I was having a conversation with a friend the other day who does a lot of content creation. And, you know, he was talking about within the Batman movies, I can't remember exactly which movie it was, but just the, the subtle innuendos towards liberal and leftist ideology that an uneducated person or an uninformed person would not think much of in that moment. But if you stack every experience that they've had with these subtle, um, pushes towards leftism, you put all of those together and then they hear someone being very overtly, you know, pro-abortion or whatever it might be. All of those experiences add up to that, that experience helping solidify where they come, where they come down on or what they believe. And I think that, you know, we've had conversations about the content that we'll be creating in the future, different YouTube channels and things of that nature. And I think it's surprising to a lot of people that, you know, what we want to do content-wise, whether it be history or homesteading or whatever it might be, is not all going to be specifically political, overtly political, because we want to be just great creators of content for people to enjoy, and we want to serve people potentially in the homesteading community and where history community, whatever it might be. And like Christian, and you both watch tons of history channels on yeah. YouTube, and y'all get really frustrated when a great channel, a great... Um, you know, someone who's a great historian will make overtly leftist claims about what happened in history. Yeah. And why, why don't we have anyone, a conservative, who is very, very good at video editing, content creation on YouTube, talking about history, that can do the same, but in actually a truthful way? Yeah, no, I, I think that's that's critical. So that's, that's that second category, arts and entertainment. Education, this one is near and dear to my heart. And here's what I'm going to tell you once again. I'm not saying don't fight for your school boards. I'm not saying don't fight for the legislation. Like I am in, I am on the education committee in Vir, in the Virginia House of Delegates. Like I'm, I'm fighting for this stuff. But what I'm, I'm generally fighting for is more, uh, more choice within the marketplace of education as opposed to just saying, well, of course the government's going to administer your education because I don't believe that that's, I don't believe that's a great model. I just don't. I don't believe that simply because I, I believe in in liberty or conservatism. I just don't think it makes sense from a practical social um, or, or, or economic standpoint to essentially have the government engage in, in effectively mass production of education. 
That's one of the points that we, we like to make when we're talking about this. People oftentimes will say, well, when it comes to homeschooling or maybe even doing something like a co-op where you're not exclusively responsible for your child's education, uh, but you're, you're working with other people to be able to provide that educational environment, a lot of times people will look at that and go, I can't replicate what the public school does. And I like to look at them and be like, good, you shouldn't try. And, and, that, and that's not because the public school model works for nobody. I'm not suggesting that. But keep in mind, the public school model was not created with your child in mind. The public school model was created with mass production in mind. And I, and I don't mean that as nefarious. I mean it was just a practical reality. If, you, if you're going to produce mass education, well, then you're going to have to produce it with those sorts of, with, with that in mind with respect to resources and everything else, and people are going to get left behind. And so within a homeschool model or within a co-op model or, or even within a private school model, which does attempt to replicate certain aspects that we see within the public education system, all right, more choice within that marketplace is going to yield more results that work for your individual child. And that's a positive thing. And oh, by the way, in most states in the United States, you don't got to ask, you can do this right now. You can homeschool. Um, in, in Virginia, we, we have pretty good homeschool laws. I wouldn't give them an A, but I'd give them, I'd give them a B because we, we have two tracks that you can go on with homeschool. One is you can homeschool and you can declare to the state that you want to homeschool. And they really ask for a very limited uh, information before you choose to do so. Or you can claim a religious exemption and completely remove yourself from the process and take on the responsibility of educating your kids. Right. And we've done both those tracks in Virginia. We've done both mm -hmm. those tracks in Virginia. And, and I, I think it's led to positive results. So the idea is, is that, look, I, I know it's difficult. I know there's a lot of people that maybe for financial reasons find it incredibly difficult to be able to do this. But I, I would say that right now, start to look at alternatives. You might not even be able to, you might not even be able to engage in the alternatives right now, right? Or, or the ones that you would prefer. But you can do something and you should at least be aware of what's available to you because so many people, no clue that the absolute plethora of, of resources that are available right now, they just assume that, well, as soon as I homeschool, I'm just going to have to figure out what the curriculum is. I'm going to figure well, out what the and day here, is. Here's the issue, too, is that um, it's all about trade-offs. And we are looking at a public school system right now and all of the things coming out of it and all of the dogma um, that is being pushed on kids all the way down to even our schools here locally in our rural Virginia Culpeper area. It's everywhere. So it's basically a trade-off, you know, um, and, and no one ever said that it wasn't going to be a sacrifice. You just have to decide whether the sacrifice is worth it or not. And, um, and whether or not you think, you think that you, you can mitigate it other ways. And um, I, I hate to say I don't see a way to mitigate some of these things. Um, you might be able to get out semi-unscathed, but it does rear its head. And, and I'm not saying that, that homeschooling is the fix-all for it either. I mean, there are plenty of people who homeschool and end up with difficult results um, due to other, other reasons. But, but I do think that it is you got to kind of examine whether or not it's worth it to you to give certain things up in order to do this, whether or not you can tighten the belt a little bit and, and take away some of the luxury items or, or downsize a little bit, streamline a little bit, you know, um, comfort is, I heard somebody say that comfort is probably one of the worst addictions you can have. Oh, wow. 
And, <laughs> and wow. so there are times when doing something that's good for your family and good for you and, and good for society isn't comfortable. Yeah. And, um, it's, it's super, you know, tempting to just revert back to what is comfortable. I'll, I'll also say this. I, I think that we've been sold a notion, not just on education from, um, like a, a practical standpoint or even an efficiency standpoint. Like I've seen people make this argument before, like, uh, you know, all of my kids' teachers had to get a master's degree and do all this other stuff. Are you really, you really think you can replicate all of that? I, I would say that it's easier to replicate portions of that uh, more today than it ever has been because with the internet and with other things, you have so many resources at your fingertips that are really, really easy to find. Two, let's say you've got the best teacher with all the credentials and you actually share a worldview on the whole deal. Your student is one of 20 to 25 in his or her classroom. Right. So I, I don't, not to mention the fact that if she's within a public school setting, she's having to teach things or he's having to teach things or abide by certain rules or regulations that, that may negate a lot of the, the expertise and the skills that they actually have. So, so once again, understand that this is still mass production. That's not to say that mass production can't produce positive results in, in some cases or even in many cases, but you're going to have to do the analysis on whether or not it works best for you. And I think most people are, are looking at what's going on in the public school system right now and are really worried uh, about what's going on. So again, that's that third component on, on education don't buy in necessarily the narrative that we've been fed that you have to send your kids to public school and then you got to take out a second mortgage to send them to college because if you don't, then you weren't a good parent and you're going to be embarrassed at the cocktail party and your kid's not going to be successful because they don't have a four-year degree in gender studies and you know and, and $60,000 in college debt. I'm sorry, none of that adds up and none of it makes sense. There are certain things for which higher education is absolutely necessary. Sometimes it's necessary because of arbitrary government licensing rules, which I don't agree with. Other times it's necessary because it really does require a particular setting in order to develop certain skill sets, right? Those are two very different things. But as, as time moves on, what you're going to find, and you're already seeing this with, with even major companies that are starting to realize that what they're hiring now is activists with a really expensive degree as opposed to productive employees, right? Ultimately, the question anybody has within the economy is what can you actually do? What can you actually do? And if what you can actually do is complain that everybody in the company doesn't have bios or their, their pronouns, preferred pronouns in their bios, th that's probably not you know, overtly productive to the company. But if you're someone that can actually produce things of value in the forms of goods or services or the contribution of the creation of goods and services, that has value. I don't care what the government says. I don't care what your DEI requirements say. I don't care what your ESG score says. If you can't actually do the things for which your company exists to do, then you're screwed. And, and maybe it's about time and, and because uh, here's the other thing, and Christian has brought this up before. One of the reasons why BlackRock and some of these other institutions have gotten away with this complete woke nonsense is because of an inflationary monetary policy where they were just having dollars thrown at them constantly. But that's not productivity. All right. Dollars that are not created through productivity are, are problematic because they're probably inflationary. They're probably government subsidies. We're, we're going to get more and more where you're going to see an economy where if you can't produce something, I don't care what your degree says. If you can't produce something, I don't care what your ESG score says. You got to be able to produce. And so when we look at education, start looking at ways that you can help your children understand what they want to do. And instead of just looking at the credentialing or the certification, which may still be important, start looking at capability. What capabilities do my children have? What capabilities am I helping them to produce that is going to make them resilient in what could be 
a very, very difficult economy to compete in. And they're going to find that the more that they can actually do, we see this all the time yep. w- within this within this industry of video editing. You come to me and you say, I've got this degree and I've got this degree and I've got this certificate. I'm going to say, great, here's a video I need you to edit. I want X, Y, and Z. If the person that can do it doesn't have the same shiny diplomas on the wall as you, I don't care. I need the person that can do the thing. I, and I talk to video editors all the time. And the ones that went to college that we, we potentially are looking to work with and they have a degree in media production or video editing, they actually come with more problems <laughs> in, in, in actually turning out what we need to turn out at the pace we need to turn out than those who may have minimal experience in video editing, but we can train up in to, to be and produce what we need them to produce. And But please, please, please don't lead your kids to believe that a college degree and a piece of paper will help them get a job. It won't, and they'll be very disappointed. Yeah, I, I, I think more and more it's it's capability. That, that's the thing that your, your, your kids need to understand, and that's so critical to their education. Let's face it, they're just not getting it to the degree that they probably should. All right, let's go, let's go through the, the last two here very quickly, and then we're going to go back to the third point here, which is talking about how we actually see this all transpiring. So the, the fiscal is your, your, your own your, – you have a fiscal policy with your house, and your fiscal policy is usually rooted in the idea that, hey, we, we can't consume more than we produce. We can't spend more than we take in. Right, because the more the more you do that, the more debt you accumulate. It turns out that the government gets away with things that you, as a family, can't get away with. And this really comes into looking at your own resources and saying, how many assets do I have versus how many liabilities do I have? And then that's also about properly understanding what an asset and a liability is in a future economy that maybe isn't operating the same way that this one is. Because there's a lot of people that are developing assets. Um, or, live, or, or assets based off of the way everything's working right now. There's a lot of people that developed assets based off of a housing bubble. There's a lot of people that developed assets based off of an inflationary monetary policy in a stock market that was fueled by inflationary monetary policy. So one of the things you need to look at, and I'm not, we're not giving financial advice here, but what we are saying is be careful that when you look at things, assets are things that provide you income, liabilities are things that consume income. But you can't just look at that within what's going on right now. You really need to be looking at that through the future as well. So it, it may be that owning property, which has is, is historically been one of the best ways to actually accumulate wealth and, and generational wealth, has been a, the accumulation of property. Okay, where do you want that property to be? Because I can tell you right now, when COVID hit, there was a lot of legislation. I watched, I watched as a Democrat-controlled legislature allocated $2 million, wait for it, to help tenants sue their landlords for not paying rent. So so let me So they didn't have to so pay let, rent. So let me clarify this. The land the the landlord was owed rent, legally owed rent, but the government had shut down the economy. So now you create a quandary. How does the tenant pay the rent? Well, they had passed all kinds of legislation telling landlords you can't kick people out. But then they wanted to allocate 2 million dollars to allow tenants to sue landlords. Now, we got up and we said, okay, look, we don't think the solution is shutting down the economy. We don't think the solution is doing any of this. But if you are going to shut down the economy, and if you're going to acknowledge that this means that tenants can no longer get paid in order to make money to pay rent to landlords that are owed rent because they probably got a mortgage they've got to pay as well, why would you give $2 million to lawyers to sue people instead of just giving the $2 million to, oh, I don't know, Pay the freaking rent. <laughs> and the bottom line was is because it was really easy. They didn't see landlords as their constituents. They saw the lawyers as their constituents. 
And so it made sense for them to create this sort of narrative and to create this sort of environment. So anyways, when you look at fiscal, when you look at assets and liabilities, don't just look at it right now, look at it for the future. Finally, when it comes to monetary policy, how does monetary policy affect you? Well, I will tell you right now, if, if you are relying on, a, on, on basically saving a bunch of Federal Reserve notes, right? Saving a bunch of US dollars. And that's, I'm not saying that saving is a bad thing. I think saving is a, is a positive thing. But by the same token, I know what I'm looking at right now with my own household. Again, not giving financial advice, but looking at my old household. I, I'm sorry, I get worried when I have just a, a, a bunch of you know, dollar bills sitting there because inflation is destroying it. That's the reality. Inflation destroys the value of your dollars. It just sits there. So we try to look for something that we can put it into that's actually productive um, because that's, that's the sad nature of, of this reality of inflationary monetary policy is it's actually a tax on savings. Now, I, I think people should have, you know, a certain amount of money saved for, you know, rainy days and the whole deal. Like I get it, some things, unforeseen things that come up that you you need cash quick on hand to be able to pay for. But more and more as we see problems with the dollar and problems with uh, monetary policy, and we realize that there's no real political incentive to fix it in the way it needs to be fixed, I'm starting to look for how do I put my money into things other than dollars? Um, and and it, look, some people hate cryptocurrency, other people like it. Here's the only thing I will tell you about cryptocurrency. I put it into two separate categories. There, there's cryptocurrency, or actually three categories. There's cryptocurrency run by the government, in which case I hate it. Right? Yep. There, there's, there's cryptocurrency, which is essentially speculative, um, which is to say that it's not really being used as currency. It's being more used more as an investment. Um, and then there's cryptocurrency, which is being used, which can has a greater capacity to be used as currency. As a utility. Yeah, as a utility. Now, there, there's another factor to take into to account, and that is inflationary versus non-inflationary crypto. Right? So some cryptocurrency is inflationary, but it operates off of a, a, a calculation. So it's not something where the, the owners of the currency can just effectively come in and print more of it right? or, or mine more of it, as they say within cryptocurrencies. And then there's others which are um, just, it's like, nope, this is the amount of crypto we have and we're not making any more. So the individual value of a token may increase over time but they're not going to just print out more tokens. So these are all things to consider. Again, I'm not telling you what to do. I'm not sitting here rah-rah for crypto or rah-rah for, you know, whatever. I, I am, I'm never going to rah-rah for straight fiat currency because I think it's a joke. Um, but that's where we're at right now. Those are some of the things to consider going forward is what assets do you have that actually provide you value and what are various mechanisms that you can use for exchange? Because barter is difficult. Now, barter becomes easier with the, the mechanisms that Tina talked about, but barter is always going to be difficult. Currency is always going to be you know, valuable. So it's about what, what sort of mechanisms are there going to be for people to still be able to engage in, in exchange through currency or currency-based exchange. All right. That kind of goes through those th points on, on or those uh, five points on what can you do. So social cohesion, look for the different elements that you can set up with intentional communities that provide that spiritual well-being, that economic well-being, that social welfare uh, well-being, et cetera. Arts and entertainment, both from the perspective of what you consume as well as what you produce. Um, it, it is amazing now through things like YouTube, but we've also got to remember YouTube's not friendly to us, Right. So, so what are the other mechanisms that we, there's a reason why we don't just stream on YouTube. There's a reason why we also stream on rumble. We, we are, we are looking for other platforms that will, we will use the platforms that we can to be able to get to a broader audience, but we're also going to invest in those platforms that we think are going to be far more resilient. Should YouTube ever decide that speaking obvious truths should get you banned, which they've already done to people education. Look, 
If you can homeschool right now, I would highly encourage you to, to do it. And, and I'm not going to say just for the educational benefits. I, I chalk up, I think that Tina and I have an excellent rule. I have a 20-year-old, a 17-year-old, and a 15-year-old. And ladies and gentlemen, I want to be around them. And amazingly enough, they want to be around us. Right? So think about that for a second. Now, that sounds simple. But how many parents and how many kids, how many families do you know right now that cannot stand spending time together? Cannot stand it. Do we think that's healthy? And here's my question. Do we think the public school system is improving it or making it worse right now? One of the biggest benefits that we got through homeschooling was not just ensuring that our kids could have an education that was specifically tailored and suited to their needs and their objectives. That was the education piece. But the other part was the additional time it gave us with our children to foster experiences, to foster bonds. You know, people talk about these, these generational gaps where people just don't understand what I'm sorry, but the, the degree of us having that with our kids is is minimal compared to a lot of other people I see where they're just like, I don't even understand what my kids are saying. I do. I do understand what my kids are saying because we had that additional time together through this process through developing education. Did we do everything perfectly? Absolutely not. There are so many times where we look back and like, man, we should have done this or we should have done that. Or gosh, did we really drop the ball here? No, like as a homeschool mom there, I, I will tell you right now, there were moments, there were moments <laughs> where I was looking at Nick going, I just feel like I am not doing this very well, you know? And, and so there's always going to be those type of moments, but you know, you're going to have those moments all the time anyway, like I'll, 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 in other areas as well. Like I'm sure that your teachers have those moments too, <laughs> you know, so, there's, for sure. In summary, buy gold and crypto. I want to hammer this point home real quick on education before we move on to those two things real quick. So for this father's day, um, I told my kid, they asked, Daddy, what do you want for Father's Day? I said, here's all I want. I said, I want you to write me a letter. And I want, ah, oh, man, I'm going to try to get, all right. So I want you to write me a letter, and I want you to tell me about something. Um, it could be a memory. It could be an experience. It could be something that we did, something that I did, something that was meaningful to you. Um, and the second part, I want you to write me about something you wish I would do differently. Something that we could do, something that we can still, we can still fix. We can still correct something, but something like, that what I, what can you do better? What can I do better? What can I do better as a father? That, that was, that was, what can I do better as a father? And all, all three of my kids wrote me that letter. That's what, that's what they did for me. And the thing that, that really got to me was, was I, I loved the nice things that they said. I loved the experiences they said. And there was some things that were interesting that you wouldn't, you wouldn't necessarily have guessed. Like you, there, there was, that was the most amazing part was something that my son wrote to me where it, it had an impact on him to where when I asked him, write down something and experience something that was meaningful to you, it was something that was so simple and it was years ago, but it had an impact on him. But the thing that, that really got me choked up was the things they wanted more of. And what they wanted more of was time, right? They wanted more, they wanted more time. More, more doing things that were in, intentional together. Um, and they were simple things. They, went, they didn't want to go to Europe with dad, right? They didn't want to do things that were, you know, super expensive or anything like that. There was just, there was things that they had, they've experienced that they've enjoyed that they wanted to do more of. And I, 
I believe that homeschooling gives me the ability to do even more of that. And, and I'm, I'm sorry, but from where I'm sitting, and I don't claim to speak for everybody, and I, I certainly don't claim to, to, to be right all the time, but from where I'm sitting, the, one of the greatest benefits that, that this journey has given us um, with, with homeschooling and, and the co-ops we participated has been the, the relationship with my children. Um, yeah. So Amanda Helmers just donated $50 and said, thanks for what you guys are doing. Keep charging ahead. Uh, Amanda, thank you very much because again, doing things like this helps us to continue to do it. And, and, um, we, we do it either way. <laughs> we'll do it as long as we can, but, but when people come forward and, and they actually help and they contribute it, it, it makes it a lot easier. And so I appreciate it. Um, all right, let's go ahead and let's go ahead and we're going to wrap this up here in the last, uh, 10, 15 minutes or so. Building back. So how do Better. we see? So, <laughs> so let's say it, it goes through this process, right? It's some some sort of thing where we go through and all of a sudden the federal government's in a lot of trouble. States are pushing back the whole deal. What is the process for getting back to, you know, some semblance of maybe like the whatever we want to call it, the America you grew up in or whatnot? What does that process look like? You've got three minutes to explain. Christian, go. Um, I've got bad news. <laughs> I don't think there... I. Nick, this is where you and I part ways because right, I, I think that I think the future is like right wing authoritarianism, not return to constitutional federalism. Yes. No, I oh, love this. Oh, no. my God. Yes. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> the guys. response oh to that I'm is just yes. Kidding. Is I, oh, yeah. I really, really want the the, <laughs> the jackboots of the state just no, stamping no, no, down no, no. on me. All right. So wait, it's, it's Christian's turn. <laughs> three, that three, that three minutes. Let's see if we can do this in so, three minutes. Hamilton, are you timing him? Yep. How so, time? Three minutes. I, I think what on happens? I think on well, what happens is a, a right wing backlash in the form of right wing authoritarianism. I, I think that the right has been so humiliated by the left, the Leviathan has swum have swum to the left for so long that when the edifices which prop up the Leviathan or the cathedral, whatever you want to call it, when that collapses and that the edifice that, that is holding that up is the monetary system, it's the federal government, it's the it's the it's the dollar. When that goes all bets are off. And I, I think eventually the right increasingly is, is going to finally come to a realization that they don't need to to go through the democratic process in order to win. And and they're gonna they're gonna take power by force. And and when they do that, part of me is very worried that they're gonna completely dishonor themselves in the process. But but w when they do that, that's when you get the massive backlash against the woke left that quite frankly they've been asking for for so long. And the, the sad thing is, is that unfortunately history is filled with examples of legitimate grievances, legitimate, you know, d d desires to correct wrongdoings. And then those transform themselves into a backlash that goes way too far. Um, and there's always no, yeah, that, 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 that's what I think is, is, is what's going to happen. Now, I don't know what time I'm at, but one fifteen. Oh, cool. Oh, good. So that's where I see things going. Um, is is that, and and we're not going to get to that point again until you get to a, a debt crisis. Once you get the hyperinflation, that's when when you know I think the right eventually gives up on the democratic process. I think the left is also going to give up on it as well. But the problem is is that the left has has ingrained this idea that voting is is a human right and it's also at the pinnacle of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's it's it, it is self-actualization and they don't necessarily realize well what are you voting for, right? And so so they 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 treat democracy as kind of like a cult without necessarily realizing that democracy is just a means to an end. And so 
when those democratic processes start to fray, I don't think that the left necessarily is going to realize what you need to do next. The right will. I think I think that history shows the right is very good at taking power by force when the chips are down. And and unfortunately, people like us that believe in constitutional government, believe in federalism, believe in in limited government and the rule of law and separation of powers and all those things, we're going to be left out is, is the sad prediction that I have. Now, the optimal solution is states step in conservatives who are running states like idaho and stuff like that that are going to to stay intact that they will step in and step up and they will fill this power vacuum rather than some right-wing demagogue and a bunch of you know authoritarian you know violent people that they step in and we still have the rule of law and we don't descend into mob violence and we restore the the federalist structure through state action that's my that's All the right. optimal scenario. Here we go. Three, three minutes, minutes on the dot. Tina, three minutes. What's what's going to happen? Go ahead. You got three minutes oh to explain. Oh, my God. Oh, I don't know. Gosh. I <laughs> I mean, I I tend to think that Christian's probably kind of uh, correct because this pendulum can only swing so far. Um, I don't know about right-wing authoritarians because we still have so many people on the right who don't, they just don't want to be bothered with it. They just want to be left alone. And as long as people want to be left alone, they're not quite ready to engage in in the fight yet. But I, I do, I see a lot of um, rumblings and people being like, you know, when are we just going to go to war on this? And we, we are in the middle of a culture war and people do keep saying, when are we going to have a civil war? The problem is, is that I just don't think it's going to be all clean like that. So you should never wish for a civil war. And so I'm um, not really sure exactly how this is going to pan out, to be honest. I'm just along for the ride, and I'm just going to err on the side of, you know, sticking to my guns and hoping that, uh, you know, hoping that my big, strong, veiny husband will save me. Everybody's talking about your veins. What What do you mean? There's one guy you, said it. Yeah, and I told him, like, I'm keeping an eye on those veins and that maybe I should feed you less bacon. And he was like, no, whoa, how whoa, dare whoa. you That's say not, that? You want, to start, you want to start a right-wing backlash right now? <laughs> Give me less bacon. All right, Hamilton, three minutes. I'm timing yep. you. Go. I, I won't need three minutes, but one comment was um, – I wanted local admin said I wanted a crypto white paper for Father's Day and my three year old is still working on it. <laughs> I thought that was funny. Um, right, but I I think in the past six months to maybe two years, uh, conservatives and people on the right have been very disappointed, um, just in general about the culture issues that we're facing, the political issues, and I think people are starting to realize just what we've been talk about what we've been talking about on this podcast is that yeah elections these problems aren't going to get fixed in an election cycle they're not going to be fixed at the federal level um but i hope my hope is is that over the next two to three to four years that people start finding an immense amount of fulfillment in what they can do locally within their own family within their own kids lives within the relationships that they have with immediate family and those that live in the area um and I hope that people will not be quite as stressed about the what's going on nationally and will be very joyful and happy in what they can do uh, within their own lives. Because at the end of the day, I think as Christians, we understand that we don't have control over where the nation's going to go, but that there is ultimate joy to be had at the end. Um, and so I don't quite know where it's going. I hope it doesn't end in war or anything of that nature. Um, but I think there's a lot of people in the middle too that are coming to the realization that um, that there are good things in society, 
being family and different things of that nature. And so, yeah, I don't quite have a prediction on where we're going to be or go. Um, but I just hope people find grow to find a lot of fulfillment fulfillment in the right areas. Well, thanks, Dr. Phil. Yeah. Yeah. But you know what? He makes such a good point on that because I think sometimes we can get so demoralized about what we see all around us that if we were to just focus on what we can do and, and put a little bit more effort into uh, trying to better our own lives and our lives of our friends and family, that maybe then we wouldn't be so daunted by what we see on the larger scale. So, so Hamilton attainers went full Philippians four, eight, finally brethren, whatever's true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute. If there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise dwell on these things. That's, That's one of advice. my favorite verses. I have yeah. to go back to that all the time because you know, cause and, and, and what that actually looks like is, you know, I have something on my mind that's that's really daunting to me that that is weighing me down. So what can I turn my mind to that is good and like highlight the things that are good and highlight what I see around me that is good and actually vocalize it and say, oh, this is good. You know, and I know that sounds like a weird exercise, but I, I believe that that is really uh, effective all right, my turn to close it out. Three <laughs> minutes, right? You got me timed, Hamilton? And go. Okay, I think we explained a lot of the things. I, I'm with Christian on some of it. And, and by that, I mean, I do think that there's no political, I think there's no larger political incentive or not a sufficient political incentive to right the ship fiscally or monetarily. I also don't think uh, that there is sufficient consumer backlash at this point to right the ship from the social cohesion standpoint or the economic or the um, <clears throat> arts and entertainment standpoint. On the education standpoint, this is the one area where I hold out the greatest amount of hope because I do believe that there are a lot of people that see some significant problems that have happened within the school system and are looking for alternatives. The real question that I have is how is that going to transpire over time? What, the, what is that actually going to create with respect to future generations and the way they look at their country, their self, uh, their faith, their responsibilities within society? Do we have a return to the belief in the power of both individual liberty combined with personal responsibility? So I do see a mechanism where that takes place, and I think that the, the optimistic outlook is things do get worse in several areas, but like in so many cases, you have a remnant. How big is that remnant? And what have they done to actually set themselves up to, de to demonstrate not just what the lie is, but what the truth is? And then when people are, are finding a situation where all of a sudden the institutions, the organizations, the beliefs that they held so dear that they thought were going to provide purpose and meaning fail them, right? It's the government that is the God that failed. And then they start actually looking for, okay, what actually does work? And in the midst of some of that issue, whether it's absolute chaos or it's just major inconvenience. As they look around and they start to see, okay, I've been told enough by the experts what works. Now I want to see the people that are actually living their lives in such a way that I want to emulate. If you can be those people in those times, that is the beginning of hard times creating strong men, strong women, strong families, which then can go back to creating the good times. But I do think that we're going to see, I think we're going to see that split, not in an actual civil war, not in an actual des destruction of the country, but I think we're going to see that split where the federal government ends up failing and there's going to be people, and not just states, but people within those states that have actually sent them and are actually showing a path for how this can be corrected. 
and, and, and hopefully reminding everyone that it was never necessary for the federal government to do these things. And there was a reason why it was never meant to do so. Because what people generally find truth, meaning, hope, and happiness in is not a government program, right? It's serving God. It's serving their family. All the things that they were told were a detriment to them, having kids and working and doing, no, no, those things weren't detriments. They actually give meaning and purpose because they're the process whereby you make your life your own, right? You, you create something beautiful. You overcome challenges, right? And ultimately, my hope is to one day stand before my creator and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. All right. Thank you very much to everyone that joined us on this. Thank you for the comments. Thank you for the interaction on the page. It was really good and really fun to, to watch. We actually had a really high viewer stream today. Um, and, and the interaction was just incredible. Please keep sending us the questions that we do this. And once again, big thank you to our members from Circle. This was this was this whole episode came from going on our circle chat, going into episode ideas, and we had we had two different ideas that were like, you know what, we we think we can make this a, a really good podcast. And so far, it, it's done incredibly well. So again, we want to thank both of our, our members for contributing to that. Um, once again, thank you for joining us, and we will see you next episode.